0: You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast.
1: Today on TopCast, we have a really, really special guest. This is a gentleman that worked for Gottlieb since before World War II until 1980 and he designed some of the most famous Gottlieb pinball machines of all time. From approximately 1949 up to 1965 he designed basically all their games. Been working in pinball since the 1930s and um, I'm really, really proud to have him on the show. Special guest, special guest, special guest, special guests. I'd like to welcome Wayne Nyans of Gottlieb. He started out in the late 1930s with Western and then went to, uh, went to Gottlieb. He designed nearly 200 games for Gottlieb. And let's talk to Wayne Nyans right now, the game designer for Gottlieb. on time. Yeah, hard to believe, hard <laughs> to believe.
2: Tell me about when you started uh, getting involved with pinball in
1: your life. I started
2: in a business in uh, thirty uh, six. At Gottlieb? Oh no, at a company called Western Equipment and Supply Company. Okay, and oh yeah, yeah, I heard Western, they made, uh, they made some great baseballs. Yeah, we, uh, we made a, a great baseball game. In fact, uh, that's, uh, that's the only thing that kept Jimmy Johnson going, you know, was that baseball game. Uh, and that uh, we had actually two baseball games. The first one uh, didn't work too well, and it uh, almost put him out of business. It bankrupted them And then uh, uh, three of, three of uh, us fellows there, uh, there was Don Anderson and uh, myself and uh, a fellow by the name of, uh, of Emil Goodman. And uh, Emil Goodman was a uh, electrical man, and uh, and Don he was just all around guy, and of course me I was just an all around guy too. But uh, you know this. Uh, but you go back a little further than that. In 1936, when I started there, uh, I started on February 11th, 1936, and I didn't know a pinball machine from a from anything. You know, I would never even seen one. Well, how did you get and, that? And uh, Jimmy uh, needed a um, a, uh, a draftsman. And uh, he uh, <laughs> he said he called up Crane Technical High School where I happened to be going to high school. And this is, now this is 1936. This is in the middle of the Depression, and I mean things were tough. Jobs were hard to get, and uh, and you know and, and they sent this notice around the high schools and, and uh, for a draftsman. And I I was pretty good at drafting, so I went and uh, answered the uh, the ad and uh, got hired. And I got hired on uh, February 11th, 1936.
1: Were they teaching drafts that, drafting in in your high school at that time, or you knew? Yes, these? oh
2: yes, I'm teaching. It was. A, I went to a Crane Technical High School in Chicago, which is a, a, a very a, very good technical school. It uh, it was a long way from my home. I had to take the streetcar there. It, it's about uh, uh, ten miles from my home, but I go every day and uh i i was very good at drafting uh, it was one of my my best subject really and they taught us uh electrical work uh forge uh, radio uh a little a little of everything along with other subjects and um uh, anyway i uh, uh that's how i happened to get to uh, get to uh western and uh, of course uh very fortunate and then uh, uh my first job was uh was to draw a uh, a payout unit. And they had the unit there, and I had to just uh, put it on paper. And my boss uh, at the time was Lynn Durant. You heard of Lynn Durant, I'm sure. Of course, he started United. Sure. Lynn Durant was the engineer on this project that we were working on. And he was my boss. And he was just a young man, of course, at that time. He was was probably... uh, I don't know how old he was, but he, he seemed like an old man. But he's probably twenty-five years old, you know, because I was seventeen, and so he was. He was. Uh, he gave me the jobs to do, and you know, and I did the jobs for him, and uh, got to know him very well. And and I tell you, if if uh, if Lynn Durant had uh, uh, had started uh, uh, United, you know, when I left Western, uh, I would have went with him because uh, we were. Uh, uh, we were friends, you know, but uh, he he was uh, at that time de- uh, designing, I think, with Harry Williams over at uh, Exhibit. And so he, uh, he uh, was over there, and, of course, I wanted, needed a job. Uh, I was working at Western. I'll give you a little story. Huh? You want a little story on it?
1: Yeah, I definitely want a little story.
2: Well, uh, uh, Jimmy went bankrupt twice, and uh, both times he kept me on. Well, first of all, let's go back a little further. When, when I was drafting, uh, that was fine after school. I worked about three or four hours a night and Saturdays. But then when I, I graduated from high school and I wanted a full-time job, uh, Jimmy Johnson told me, he says, well, we can't keep you on full-time. We don't have that much drafting to do, but you can work dra- part-time drafting. I said, oh, no, that won't do. Uh, I, I won't have that. And uh, I said, can't you give me a job in the shop? Can I work down in the shop? Which is the best thing that ever happened, because they gave me a job in the shop, and I filled in all over. I did. I ran cables, I soldered, I ran a punch press, I uh, did everything, and and by doing that, I, I learned the whole trade. And then they, uh, at that time, uh, games were just changing over to power packs. They were uh, before that, they were all uh, all uh, battery operated games. So. Uh, uh, they'd send these games in. These uh, operators would bring the games in, and uh, and I would work on them and change, take power packs out or take the batteries out and put power packs on them and and uh, and those kind of things. So I learned the pinball business pretty thoroughly. So uh, a power
1: pack was essentially a, uh, that was a, a transformer, that was but
2: a transformer with a rectifier.
1: Oh, because it was running on DC.
2: Running on DC, yeah. Okay. And of course, you know, the operators were scared to death of games at that time because they weren't used to. Plugging it into the wall, gosh, that was a dangerous thing. But when he went bankrupt, uh, and he kept me on, and uh, Don Anderson and, and Emil Goodman, and we uh, built the, uh, rebuilt the baseball game. And uh, that was a, his successful game. And he got really going on that, and we did real well. And, uh, and then uh, I got put on the, uh, uh, ended up doing final inspection work and uh I was the final inspector, and I was in charge of the whole line. I was only eighteen years old now, on the baseball, you mean
1: western's deluxe baseball kind of was a squarish
2: yeah, cabinet it was a square a
1: square cabinet right right kind of almost had a jukeboxish type look to it more kind
2: of yeah it did and you know uh, uh, uh see somebody had it at the show here not too long ago uh i think uh Oh, uh, Rob, Rob had one, I think it was.
1: Yeah, and the front drawer in it, it had like a drawer that you pulled out. Yeah, you pulled the drawer out, that's like right. Like a filing cabinet drawer. Yeah. And that's where all the uh, electromechanical stuff was.
2: That's where it was.
1: Yeah, that's that was really unique. I, I've never seen a game that did that.
2: Yeah, the relay bank was on the right-hand side. You know, I can remember that as if it was yesterday. Now, a lot of things I can't remember, but some things that happened in Western I can remember very clearly. I'll tell you a little interesting thing that happened at Western. Uh, uh, you know, at that time, there were no free play. Free play was not uh, known. And Jimmy bought the uh, patent to the free game, uh, the push chute. That, uh, you know, you can push it in. Uh, you put a nickel in, you push it in. Or you can push, uh, hold a lever on the bottom of it and push it in. That was a free play coin chute. And he bought the, the, uh, the rights to that coin chute. And he didn't know what to do with it. Nobody knew what a free play was or how to use it, how to make a novelty game. And Harry Mads was there at the time, and uh, he was trying, you know, and so on. But uh, they didn't have a free play unit. They didn't know what a free play unit was. So I made one for him, you know, just as as a kid, you know. I made it up, and I took it up and showed it to Jimmy. And Jimmy said, wow, does it work? And I said, sure, it'll work. And he said, well, put it in the game. So I did. And it worked fine, and so he called up, see, uh, um, who the heck was it at the time?
1: Um, ABT or something? GM
2: Laboratory. Okay. And GM Laboratory came over, and they bought the rights to my free play unit. They gave me a check for $50. But well, that was a lot of money back then, I assume. That was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. That was on October the 5th, 1937. And what did Jimmy say? He was, he was thrilled, you know.
0: Did and, he get a uh, piece that he, uh, of
2: that? Did he get he a He had the. Uh, now he knew how to how to make a game, how to how to make a a, a a free play game, an amusement device.
1: Well, did he get a piece of that that licensing, as it was?
2: No, I didn't get nothing but the fifty dollars. <laughs> you know, if I had a piece of it, I'd be a rich man today. <laughs> ah, that's pretty good. All right, so how long were you at Western for? I stayed there till thirty nine. And in 1939, I was the final inspector in the line, and I was making a nickel an hour less than the man working next to me. And that man's name was Tony Burgo. I'll never forget him. And he used to rip the delivered daylights out of me because he was making more than I made. And so I told Jimmy, I said, Jimmy, I want to talk to you about money. And he said, okay, come up to the office. So I went up. And then he said, sit down, we talked, and he said, okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you two and a half cents, an hour, more. I said, okay, Jimmy, that's great. So I went down to my working spot at the end of the line. I picked up my tools, my toolbox, and I walked out the door. It was two, one o'clock in the afternoon. Wait, I wait, went you're, on, you're, on the streetcar. You agreed to a, a raise, but then you left? I left. Two and a half cents he gave me. So that was an insult. That was an insult. That was an insult, because now I'm still making less than the guys working under me. Oh, under me. So I get on the streetcar and I'm going home, and I go past Jenko. Now, I knew guys that work at Jenko, and uh, we were kids, you know. We used to play baseball. We had a baseball league, so I got to know a lot of the kids. And anyway, I go over. Uh, I'm going past Jenko, and I get off the streetcar and uh, at the Versi. And Gottlieb is two blocks uh, west, and Jake goes two blocks back. So I said, well, what the heck, I'll go over to Gottlieb. Within a half hour, I was testing playboards in the Gottlieb playboard line.
1: And did you get, did you get the pay increase that you wanted too I got
2: 10 cents an hour more than I was making at Gottlieb. Oh, you mean at Western? At Western, yeah. Right. <laughs> 10 cents an hour more. So, now, when you left
1: Western, did you say Mab's was, where was Mab's at? Yeah, Mab's had gone to Gottlieb. So he was already there.
2: He was already at Gott, and that's the reason why when I stood in the corner debating which way to go, I, I knew Harry, and see Harry had a son by the name of Bud, Bud Mabs, and Bud Mabs and I were of the same age. And Bud Mabs worked at at Western along with me. And him and I used to horse around a lot, and we go out uh, dating at night, you know. And him and I and and uh, and Harry liked uh, me to go along with Bud because Bud was a little bit of a wild uh, character, and uh, and I was a little uh, I was a good influence on him, and so Harry always liked me to go out with 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 uh, with Bud, and so uh, Harry and I became friends too, you know, and so when Harry was at William at Gottlieb, I said, Well, what the heck? I'll go over there, and so I did, and I got a job and and on uh, testing playboards and and uh, and then. Of course, I could do anything in the shop. Cause I knew everything about the game. And hmm. uh, now, did you even talk to the people at Genko at all, or did no, you? you no, know, I never went in. the, so in, the in the building. In now, see, if I had gone to Genko, that uh, Kordak, Kordak, yeah, yeah, I would have been uh, with Kordak, him and, and the other guys, you know. But uh, I didn't know Kordak at the time, but I, I knew other the other kids because we were we uh, we had this baseball league. of uh, The manufacturers, there were a lot of manufacturers at that time. And I used to play baseball, and I played on the Western team. So I got to know these guys, and, and you know, everybody kind of knew everybody. So you didn't know
1: you didn't know Steve Kordak, and you didn't know Harvey Heiss at the time. No, I didn't know them. You didn't know them. Oh. So, so not was it not easy not for a- you <laughs> to go over to Gottlieb because you knew somebody over there? That's right. Okay, yep. very cool. So now, what year was this that you were at, that you started at, at Gottlieb?
2: Thirty-nine.
1: Thirty-nine.
2: Yep. So. I start. I see. I, I started there on. Um, uh, well, let's see. It was in August, I think, uh, thirty-nine. Uh, see if I got it down here, please. Yeah, I. Uh, I started at Gottlieb. Uh, uh, or I started at Gottlieb on uh, September first, nineteen
1: thirty-nine. Now you were doing. Uh, you were testing the boards. i uh, testing
2: play boards. Yeah.
1: Right uh, now. How long was it before you know you started taking on more responsibility? Well, I, I did
2: that for about a month, maybe more or less, not more, maybe about a month, and um, we had a um, we had a, uh, a problem with one of the games. I uh, I don't know which game we were building at the time, and we shipped out uh, Mesa games to New York, and uh, they had an error in them. They needed needed a circuit change on it, and um, they had no one to send, so they picked me. Which is very nice, of course Dave, Dave and I uh, I got to know Dave very well in that, uh, that month, and, and um, uh, anyway, he sent me to New York, so I, I got rid of my job in the playboard line and, and uh, lost my job in the playboard line, I might say. And I went to New York and I, I worked there for about uh, oh, two or three weeks, and uh, then I came back, and uh, of course they had to find a job for me now, you know, because somebody else is doing the playboards. And so uh, I got put in the engineering room, and I started working in there, and and uh, one thing led to another, you know. And uh, Now, is that where Harry was working, too? Harry Mabs was working? No, he was, he was in the design room, uh, which was uh, adjacent to the engineering room. So was, was Harry designing games at that time? Oh, yes, yeah. He was the only game designer they had at that time.
1: So he kind of got into that position rather quickly, then?
2: Well, he was doing design over at the Western, too. Oh, oh, okay. okay. Uh, that's what he uh, was primarily a designer, and then, of course, he uh, that that was a crazy place at Western. Uh, uh, it was constantly in a state of flux. It just, uh, uh, I don't know. They 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 kept changing positions all the time. Harry uh, was a designer supposedly, but then he became uh, the factory uh, foreman, and he ran the factory for a while. And uh, of course, uh, Bud and I were working under him, and. And uh, we we had a ball him and I, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, that uh, he he did all kinds of things over there. And then when they went bankrupt, why he laid ev- they laid everybody off. And then Harry went and he got tired of that being laid off, and and he went over to Gottlieb and then got a job as a designer and and, uh, and did very well over there. And he was well liked. Uh, Harry was a very uh, likable person, and and uh, <laughs> and he he did very well over there. And, and of course uh, him and I. I, I did a lot of work for Harry at that time. He, Harry, Harry was a, a great idea man. He had ideas, he had ideas coming out of his mind all the time and, uh, and, I, and uh, he, he didn't like to turn the crank, he didn't like to draw the circuit up and he didn't like to, to uh, uh, wire the game up and uh, those kind of things were below him. You know, he, he had another idea that he wanted to work on. And uh, that's that's what made him so good. He was uh, he had so many ideas going all the time that uh, he was a great uh, great designer. Now, when World War II broke out, how did that how did everything change? Well, everything stopped in the in the industry, of course. And uh, a lot of some people, like Durant and Williams, got together. I guess you know that story.
0: Well, and uh, I, I they like started up a little
2: country, a little company that, uh, that uh, rebuilt games. They bought old games, and they'd strip them down, take the wires and stretch them out and, and bundle them up into colors and so forth. And the relays, they'd take apart and clean them and so on, and build new games from that. And uh, that's what they did during the war. But Gottlieb itself, uh, they went into war work. They did a lot of uh, tool and die making. Uh, They operated, uh, did a lot of punch press work, uh, you know, that uh, machine shop type of thing.
1: Right, right. Now, I heard a story, and I I don't know if it's true, but a story that um, Durant and Williams, you know, they were in in business together during the war, and then after the war, they had some sort of, uh, you know, they split off, you know, of course, Durant went to United, became United Manufacturing, and... And, and Harry Williams became, of course, Williams. Yeah. I heard that, that, they, that what caused them to really split up was that they were fighting over a woman.
2: <laughs> well. <laughs> I mean, is there any truth to that story? I, I, never, I never heard that, but uh, it, it could be. <laughs> but uh, uh, That's what someone told
1: me. It told me that they, they, they flipped a coin to see who got the gal, <laughs> and the guy that got the gal had to leave and, and,
2: and, and you know had to leave the company. well, you know that that sounds like durant I, I don't sound like Williams, but it sounds like Durant uh, <laughs> so it could be or could not be but so, uh, I, I tell you uh, see Durant was married when I knew him, uh, and his wife uh, was very sick and she uh she eventually died, and he was really uh, uh taken took it hard. He, uh, he, he really loved that woman and, uh, uh, and he, uh, when she died, all the time she was sick, it was, it, she was, lingered for months and months and months and, and all that time I knew him and he was beside himself, uh, with this, with this terrible thing going on. So, but, uh, of course later on he became quite a, uh, a man about town and, and, uh, and I, I can believe the story, but I, I can't verify it. No. Okay, I was just curious. Yeah, and I, and I heard that Harry won, Harry Williams <laughs> won,
1: and he had to leave United. And, of course, that's what started Williams. You well, know.
2: it could be, but I, I wouldn't... I, I, wouldn't uh, I
1: might just be fish hockey, who knows. Yeah,
2: it, it could be
1: anything, you know. So now, after the war... Well, well, just to kind of back up a little bit, how big was Gottlieb compared to like Western? Was it a bigger company?
2: Yes, it was bigger than Western. Yeah, Western was uh, uh, a very small company. Uh, we had, oh, I'd say uh, uh, we went all the way from three people working in the factory to uh, I would say uh, uh, two hundred, maybe at max. That's a maybe pretty... not that. Maybe a hundred be max. Because it wasn't that it wasn't that big a factory. Now, what about Gottlieb? Well, Gottlieb was a little larger. I'd, I'd say uh, twice as large as uh, as Western.
1: Now, after the war, how long was it before you know you guys were making you know pin games again?
2: We were making pin games right away, right away. Uh, after the war, I, I was in the war. I, I went. I was in the Air Force, and. Uh, uh, stationed out uh, in in Maine, as a matter of fact, most of the time. And uh, after the war, the war ended in in, in uh, Japan, and uh, I got to leave. I came home, and of course, uh, you know, you always go back to the factory and see who's around and who's there, who's not. And I went back, and, the, and our superintendent, uh, his name was Tony Gerard at the time, uh, brought me in the office, you know, and. Uh, Dave came in and everybody and they're, they're talking as well. When, when are you going to get out? When are you coming back? You know, and all that. And says, well, how do I know? If, you know, they're so slow in getting out. And, uh, you know, it'll be a while, I'm afraid. But but uh, Tony said, well, well, we'll see what we can do for you. And Dave said, I'll, I'll take care of it. You know, I could, I'll take care of this. And uh, within two weeks, I was out. Got and, out of the service,
1: and they were happy to have you back.
2: Oh yeah, and I I went back and I I said, well you know, I got to have uh, I'm coming to work right away now, but uh, I got to have two weeks off in the in the in the, in the summertime because I'm I'm going to get married, and I you know, need need a couple weeks off. And they said, okay, you take any two weeks you want. And I said, okay, <laughs> you got a deal. And I went back to work, and of course, then gradually all the guys came back, and uh, most of them. We lost a few. People in the war, but most of them came back, and uh, we started up again. And uh, I think the first game was a, a kind of a carryover. A stage door canteen was the first game after the war, and uh, I think it was we had the game left over from before. Harry Harry Mabs he uh, he went down to Texas during the war, and he uh, he uh, ran a route a pin game route, and. Uh, I guess did fairly well, at it, but of course uh, he wanted to get back into the factory and the designing and the, the guys. So he came back and started designing again, and uh, and we took off, and and, uh, and we had quite a run from then on.
1: Now, Harry was uh, pretty much the primary game designer at the time, right? Harry Maps. He he was the designer, yes. So, and then in in late '47, of course. His invention, the the flipper, yeah, as seen on Humpty Dumpty, came out. Yes, I mean, was that like a giant kick in the
2: pants for Gottlieb? Oh yes, it sure was. It uh, it it enabled the game, the pin game, to become a um, amusement device. Before that, it uh, no one no one knew how to really make an amusement device. It uh, it wasn't any fun to play. You know, you shot a ball and. Oh yeah, there was a little fun to it, but uh, but the flipper uh, that made the game. You know, it just it, it, uh, the industry changed overnight. And Lynn Durant at that time is a little interesting story. He said he would never put a flipper on a pinball machine.
1: <laughs> he obviously changed his mind within. And he changed his mind months. within a
2: couple of months because he couldn't sell anything.
1: Right, right, right. Now, so the the flipper came out. Now, why didn't Gottlieb patent that?
2: Well, I tell you why. Uh, Dave Gottlieb said that what's good for the industry is good for Gottlieb, and he believed in that. And he didn't patent; he patented very little. I, in fact, there's only one thing that I know for sure that he patented, and that was something that, that was my bumper switch. You know the the uh, the silver point that, uh, that operates the bumper circuit. You're talking about like on a
1: pop bumper or the any, any ball kickers.
2: It's, on all the bumpers now. Oh, okay. It, it used to be a, um, a carbon ring with a, a peg in it.
1: Right. I hate those things. Yeah, they were
2: they were a disaster. And can you imagine that on a pop bumper? Yeah, it was awful because Williams
1: used that carbon ring well into the 50s. And whenever I work on those games,
2: I hate them. I always convert them over to Gottlieb, the spoon switch. Yeah. Well, I, I designed the... And I have the patent on that uh, that switch. The spoon switch? On, the, on that switch... It, under the bumper i use, i have a patent on that switch now
1: eventually though williams went to that uh, everybody went switch. to it yeah so what happened did the patent expire
2: or something oh no, no no we just didn't care we we told him uh, godly used to tell him what's good for the industry is good for me and and what you do is good for us we'll get along and and he was that way he didn't care huh we didn't care you know
1: right well that's pretty friendly business practice
2: Yes he was, uh, Dave was a, a gentleman uh, I tell you that uh, i I knew Dave very very, very well
1: now on the um on the internet pinball database, the first game in nineteen forty nine that's credited for you as the designer is college days. yeah, that's right. now, how did you step up to being a game designer?
2: Well, I tell you at that time. I was building test fixtures for the uh, for the factory. Every time a game came out, my job was to build three test fixtures for the bottom line and three for the playboard line and three for the lightbox line. That was my job. So I would hustle along and get that job done in a hurry. I get if we ran, uh, say we ran a month, I could I could build test fixtures for the next game in maybe two weeks. You know. And I had two weeks, I had nothing to do. So I'd, I'd go out and shoot trouble in the shop, but that uh, that was all. But then I, uh, what I did, I got a cabinet and a playboard, and, and I started making my own game just to keep myself busy. And I made college days, and I'd say it took maybe uh, well, maybe a year, you know, because I only worked on it uh, when I had time.
1: Which is a long time. A year is a long time at that. I mean, yeah. you know, it was like a three- or four-week Game development period.
2: Yeah, so During I only worked time. maybe uh, an hour here, an hour there, two, three hours wherever wherever I could fill it in. I would I would design the game.
1: So when you showed it to, I assume you showed it to David and Harry. Wh- what was what was the reaction?
2: Well, they li- they liked it. You know, in fact, at college days, did very well. That yeah. was a very good game.
1: Yeah, you you sold uh twenty two hundred and thirty of them.
2: Which At that is time, that was a good run. Yeah, that was a really
1: good run. Yeah, I mean compared to the production of games after that, you know everything's like a thousand or less. Yeah, and here you more than doubled that. That, that
2: was a pretty good game, and you know that uh, that started me, and then I, I built another game. I what? think it was basketball.
1: Yeah, basketball was your next one. And
2: then Casey Jones. Yep. Uh, uh, those those were just uh, you know just my fill in work and of course Dave loved it you know and and uh and Harry loved it too he uh, he he liked me and uh, and he encouraged me too and uh, uh so we're you know we were friends we'd visit back in fact he lived not too far from me and we'd visit back and forth in uh in, in our free time sundays Saturdays uh, but uh, uh, that's but how I got started and then of course uh Harry left and went back over to Williams and Dave came to me and he said, "Wayne, you're a full time designer. Go over in that room and get busy." <laughs> and I did. <laughs> okay.
1: Now, in nineteen around nineteen forty eight and forty nine, also the pop bumper was invented too. What's that? The, the pop bumper. You know the the, uh, the pop
2: bumper, yeah. Yeah. Now, who who invented that? Uh, that was designed by um, uh, Charlie Castaker. Okay. Did it, you ever hear the name? No, never. Well, Charlie Castaker was the, uh, uh, the supplier for plastics for the whole industry. He, his company was, um, uh, American Molded Products, I believe it was. American Molded Products. And he made uh, two kinds of pop bumpers. One, as you know it today, and one was a little different. It was a, uh, uh a, 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 a wire wound a spring that was about uh, oh I would guess uh, half inch in diameter, maybe maybe five eighths in diameter, and it circled a bumper as, as a collar, and then it, then there was a uh, inside of that was a, uh, a, a a lever I guess you'd call it. it would pull down against that spring and push outwards. The spring would expand and hit the bumper, hit the ball, and go outwards. And he had the two versions, and uh, he gave us each one. He gave uh, I think for all the companies uh, both versions, and uh, we put it on playboards. We fooled around with it, and uh, and I think we all uh, agreed that the one we came out with that we finally used was the, was the right one, and and uh, and so he uh, he was the designer of it. And, and who did he work for? He worked for the plastic company? Well, he owned the plastic company.
1: Oh, he owned it? Yeah, okay. he owned
2: it. That was Charlie Castaker. And he oh, basically marketed this to all the companies? He marketed it to all the companies, right. That's pretty smart in on fact, his part. In fact, he started out... Charlie was a uh, a salesman for uh, a spring company. Back in... Uh, and now we're talking back in 1936, 37. He was a, a salesman. And he... Found out about plastic. Now plastics were just coming out in 1936. They, there was no plastic before that. So he he made a he got a little molding machine and he made po- a post, and he brought it around. I remember him bringing it to Western, and he was he wanted to sell it. And so that's the first time we put it on a game. It was back in it was about 37, I guess we started putting it on a game. 37, 38. It was the plastics. Then were not like they are today. They were they were poor plastics. They would shrink. They would you put a screw into the board to screw that post down, and uh, a month later it would be loose because the plastics um, would would shrink. It would uh, try to go back to its original shape, I guess, as a as a glob. So uh, he he came a long ways in the position. And this was the first company that supplied uh, plastic parts. I think. Uh, for a lot of people.
1: And he was doing like the injection molded style plastics, right? Pardon? He was doing like that you're talking about like injection molded style plastics. Injection molding, right. Right. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, so now in in uh mid fifty one, Harry Harry left Gottlieb and, and went to Williams, Harry yep. Mabbs. Now why why did he do that? Why would he leave Gottlieb?
2: Well, uh that that's a good question and, and uh uh, I, I really don't know the the real answer, but I, uh, I I've heard a lot of rumors. One of them was that uh, he he went to Dave and wanted uh, money. And see, this was shortly after the flipper, and uh, Harry thought he should have had a big a big bonus, big, a lot of money. And uh, and Dave was not not that kind of a guy. He he never gave you money like that, but he. He took care of you at the end of the year. He, we always got a bonus, but not for any particular thing we did on a daily basis. If you did something on a daily basis, that's part of your job. And uh, I think uh, uh, I was there. I was a, I was designing. I, he knew I could design. And I was a kid. I, well, I was more than a kid. I was, see, I was in 40... Uh, uh, 51. 40, 48, 49, I guess. Up to like forty nine, so I, I was uh, uh, thirty years old, you know. And but anyway, uh, I I just I, I was there, and, and Harry was getting, putting pressure on him for money. I guess and that's what I think. I'm not so sure, but that's part of it. And uh, and I was there, and uh, he had an ace in the hole. I was the ace in the hole. And of course, uh, even though Harry left, and and we were a little bit of a cloud, by Harry and I were still friends. And we still visited a little bit, uh, not as much as we used to, because we were kind of, you know, competitors. But uh, we did, uh, we were still friends. But, uh, that's how I became a full-time designer. When he left, and I I feel kind of responsible for it. If if I wasn't there, uh, Dave probably would have paid him, you know. I don't right. know. Hmm. Now, you did some really
1: great games in this era, too. In you know, just before... Harry Mabs left, and even just after he left, all in there you had a run of some amazing games. Like you know, a couple that really that I really like are like Spot Bowler. That's one that I I, I really enjoy. I think it's a great game. Um, ha- you know, Happy Go Lucky. That's another one. But the the big one that you did that's like the all-time Gottlieb collectible. Probably not. It's certainly number one
2: is Mermaid. 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 Tell me about Mermaid. Well, I thought you would go to slay, say Slick Chick. No, Mermaid. Mermaid's where it's at. They you know, everybody has their favorites. Well, the, 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 during the 50s,
1: I, I, think it, I think you could easily be said that Mermaid is the most collectible Gottlieb single player wood rail, you know, in that era, by far. Uh, and they're really hard to find because he didn't really make a lot of them. Um, oh, let's
2: see. Uh...
1: About 600 of them or
2: so. 600, yeah.
1: Yeah, and they had, uh, and it had a course of mechanical animation in the back box oh. where the fisherman's line pulls up. Um, and that little fish. Yeah, the fish in the shoe.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: you know, I still got that fish. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I think I still have it. I may I give it to somebody. I don't know, but I, uh, I've had it in my toolbox here uh, for years and years. I may have given it to somebody now. I'm thinking about it, but I, I've had it here for so long. Well, yeah, I made a little fish, you know, and colored them and hung them in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, now tell me
1: about mermaid. How did you How did you come up with that design? I have no idea.
2: <laughs> no idea. That That is that is very amazing. I I, I don't think anyone ever said that mermaid was so popular. I.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's big time collectible. Check, you know,
2: everybody talks about slick chick.
1: I, I mean, I own a Slick Chick and I own a Mermaid, and I know which one I'd pick. And it is a right. Slick Chick,
2: <laughs> huh?
1: Yeah, well, no. My, I my mean,
2: personal favorite is, is Queen, of, Queen of Hearts.
1: Oh, that yeah. We're, I was going to kind of come up to that one too. I was going to go kind of go through this favorite. chronologically um, and see if you had any uh, any stories about some of these games. Like, uh, for instance, Rose Bowl. Um, that was another one of your games. It's a fairly that was an early game, yeah. Yeah, 1951, Rose Bowl. Um, another good one from that era, 1951. Again, is Niagara.
2: Oh, Niagara! I, I can tell you a story, of Niagara.
1: Yeah, tell me about Niagara. Great game.
2: Uh, that that was a one of my favorite games, and uh, so I uh, I took one home and I had it in my basement for the kids to play with, you know. And uh, I, what I do, uh, what I used to do, was uh, not take a game off production line or nothing like that. But I would take a uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the sample game, and I take a get a new playboard and and uh, get a cabinet, and I would take it home and I would transfer everything onto the new playboard and build it up, and so I'd have a have a game.
1: Yeah, because and, you're uh, saying the engineering samples were,
2: basically, yeah, kind of an engineering sample.
1: Or, yeah, white woods with no graphics on them, right?
2: Yeah, but I I got the board from uh, from our, our cabinet company. You know, they send me one over, and I just have it screened, and then I'd go and build it up. But uh, the, my kids loved that game. They played it all constantly, and the neighbor kids would come over and play it constantly. So I had a friend down the street who was a uh, who sold uh, encyclopedias. He was he was uh, he was president of uh, of the Encyclopaedia uh, Britannica. And he, uh, he he liked that game, too. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do, Wayne. He said, I'll, I'll trade you a set of encyclopedias for that game. So I sold I sold the game to him and got the set of encyclopedias. My kids wouldn't speak to me for about a month. They're mad at me, you know. They didn't like the encyclopedias. They wanted that game back again. <laughs> Are you still there? Yeah, I'm listening. I think that's a great story. Oh. No, no, the... oh, anyway, I got rid of that game. I, I had to get him a new one, so I got I got a different game for him. Now, N- Niagara
1: was unique in that it was the first game to use trap holes. Yeah, yep. Okay, now what was the thinking behind trap holes?
2: Well, you know, trying to come up with something different, it was all. It wasn't a, a, a planned thing. And I, 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 I wanted to, you know, it was a constant fight to make a game that played the right length of time. And if you wanted to close up the bottom to give a little better action... The you, you, you game played too long, so you had to come up with something, and so uh, I came up with those trap holes, and uh, and they were a lot of fun. After a while, you, you got you got till you like them, and and then you know to to to, uh, to stay with the same same subject. Uh, Queen of Hearts uh, was a game that uh, was the first game where the balls fell through it. You shot for the alcohol. Right, it was the
1: first game with what we call gobble holes.
2: Yeah, first gobble hole. Right, a trap hole. We never call them gobble holes, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and my thinking at that time was, could I possibly make a game where a player would take and shoot for the out hole? You know, is that possible? And I made it, and not not believe in it. I, I didn't believe it. You know, that you do. It. I got it together, and I played it, and you know. It, it was spellbinding. I loved that game, and when I when I uh, I got through with it and I and it was okay for production and so forth, and I had to go on to make another game, I couldn't do it. I I can't make another game. That that game is a, the end of all games. It took me I don't know months to to get over that game. I, I loved it. I loved to play it, and uh, I to this, to this day I still like that game. Oh
1: yeah, I I have a Queen of Hearts, and it's in it's an amazing game. It's a great. Playing game, and it's it has yes a lot of people complain about gobble holes, but it the the simple fact of gobble holes is is that it, they reward you for a good shot and they take away for a bad shot and yeah. it makes you a better player. You know, it just makes you a better player. To, you know, when a game playing a game with gobble holes.
2: Yeah, but you, the gobble hole has to mean something. It has got to me have a big meaning to it, and and uh, uh, that uh, that that to me is a, is the whole thing, and I I love that game, and I still do, and a lot of people say you know the slick chick's a better game, but I tell you, uh, you, you that Queen of Hearts is a, is a is a game that's hard to beat.
1: Now, when and, and like Queen of Hearts, when you put it a ball in each one of the holes, it it represents um um. Uh, part of the hand they're part of the card hand yeah and if you get a ball in each one of the holes you can win a lot of replays in that game that's right and and you and Gottlieb had a replay unit that went up to 26 units it had a a maximum of 26 credits that you could have on, on the on the credit wheel that's now right. did Dave Gottlieb or did anybody ever come up to you and say uh you know look we, this is the maximum number of of credits, we want any particular game to win or not win or or whatever. How did you come up with that whole concept? Because you could win, you know, in one shot. You know, you could win a whole boatload of of replays in just, you know, in one shot. Yeah,
2: but that didn't happen very often.
1: No, no, it didn't happen very often. But, you know, I mean, there was some, some games that it really was huge on, um... Uh, one I can think of is Sweet Adeline, where if you get all the rollovers and you're at zero credits and you hit every rollover, uh, you win twenty-six. That replay unit just keeps knocking off the knocker knocks, and the replay unit kicks off a replay for, for all the way until that credits max switch is is opened up, which is at twenty-six credits.
0: Yeah.
1: you know that to me that's that's pretty amazing. That you could win twenty six credits in one game.
2: I'll will tell you something about that sweet Adeline. That game was taken from a bingo card, and you know, biggles was a dirty word at that time. Can you picture Sweet Adeline? Yeah,
1: you're right. In the in the in the back glass, it's got a girl with an adding machine. Yeah, and it's got like uh, yeah, it's got a bunch of numbers in it, like like off uh, like off a. Uh, uh, a tape coming out of an old style adding machine.
2: Well, you know, that's what it looks like, you see. But that was originally taken from a bingo card. Those numbers are all numbers from a bingo card. And if I had told Dave Gottlieb that that game was made from a bingo card, he would have thrown me out. He didn't like bingos.
1: Yeah, because that was 19. Uh, 19- Sweet uh, Adeline. So I
2: fooled them, you know.
1: Sweet and Adeline was 1955. Happy Days, which was 1952, the one with uh, the school schoolteacher uh, and the kids on the back glass.
2: Oh, that was that was the one of Parker's best pictures, best designs, wasn't it? Yes. He outdid himself on that one.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the artwork on on Happy Days is among the best of that of that era. That's for sure. Yeah, it's got kind of like a tic tac toe thing going yeah, on.
2: line was a bingo, was taken from a bingo card. Now, uh, Happy days. I don't. I don't recall uh, that. I don't think it had anything to do with a bingo card.
1: Okay. Um, now, tell me about the double award system and how that came up.
2: <laughs> boy, oh boy, <laughs> the double award. Yeah. Well, you know that was just a gimmick thrown in, and, and uh, I, I thought it was a pretty good idea, and, and we we ran it for quite a while, and uh, I don't know whether it made any money or not, but it was a gimmick, you know. That's all it was, was a gimmick, and uh, it, uh, we had it for a while. I, I don't know if anyone ever used it.
1: Yeah, just to, to explain, you put a single nickel in to play the game, but if you put two nickels in... Putting
2: two nickels, you get the, twice the free plays. Right. Yeah. Four. But that, that was just a gimmick, and uh, it lasted for a few games, and that was all. I don't think anyone ever played it that way. It, it was You know, a novelty game, why would you put two nickels in? I don't know why i I don't even know why I did it, you know, but it just fool just playing around i guess
1: so that was your idea
2: yeah i, I have to lay claim to that <laughs> i I'll tell you one thing uh, that I don't think you you've ever heard, maybe you have uh uh four player games you know we came out with a four player game
1: right in nineteen fifty four was the first four player what was it super jumbo
2: super jumbo right well i I made super jumbo of course and and uh and the, the, uh, we had a big show showing in our, our factory, and we had all our distributors come in and look at it. And, of course, they all cried, you know, with so much money and all that. And, and anyway, uh, we sold a few, and then they kept crying about the money. And so we went to two players. And uh, they. so we all alternated four players, two players, four, four players, two players. And, and usually the, the the weaker of the games that we thought was the weaker of the games, which meant nothing, in our opinion, really just mean anything. We, we would make a two-player. If we thought the game was really good, we'd make it a four-player. And that's how it, was desi- how it went. But after we were into it for maybe, oh, three or four or five years, I don't know how many years it was, and uh, I, I wanted to find out. My, my thought was when I made the first four-player was that if you could get four, four guys playing the game, one of them would win a free play. And if one of them won a free play, the other three couldn't walk away and leave them there with that one free game. And they wouldn't walk away and leave it on the game, on the machine. So they would stay and put some more nickels in. But um, I, I thought I wanted to find out just exactly uh, how, what percentage of people played these games. How many were, times there were four and how many times there were three. So I sent out a game on location with meters. And I metered the, uh, the play on that game for a long period of time, months. And I found out that the majority of the time, one player played. And the, the amount of times that four players were actually playing was, was very, very small percentage of the time. I, I don't have the figures anymore in my head, but I, I remember I was shocked that, that still, at uh, being a four-player game, generally one player played. And and two was was uh, was uh, better than course of course three four players were very seldom played, and uh, but still they they wanted four players in some locations, so so they got them.
1: That that, do, that doesn't surprise me at all. Actually, I mean I, I the the two in the four player games I, I I you know how often do you play four players? It just doesn't happen that often.
2: No, it don't happen. I tell you another thing. We we built a uh, a six player game, and we called it High Boy, and it went as far as getting uh, screened and uh, actually built one game, and it was a tremendous light box. It, it was a beaut, and what a circuit that was! That was <laughs> that was something else. And uh, but that, as far as it went, one game was built. And it called High Boy, and I always wondered what happened to that game. <laughs> Where's where that game at today? What year do you think that was? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Uh, Let's say... uh, I'd say 1960, about.
1: Hmm. Now, some of these other games uh, were real, real popular. Like, um, here's another one, Arabian Nights.
0: Arabian Nights,
1: huh? Yeah. Arabian Nights had a selector knob on the front of it where you could determine, like, how many um, of the gobble holes would light up how many you? How many holes you had to hit to win? What
2: was the thinking on that game? I have no idea. I, I can't. You know, I can't remember the details on any game. Uh, why I did a certain thing on a certain game, I, I can't remember that.
1: Okay. Was there any other like uh, you know some other ones? Just I'm wondering if it if it hit any uh any memories, you know, like Green Pastures or Mystic Marvel or Hawaiian Beauty or Daisy May or Dragonette. Any any, I any good know, uh, memories?
2: Uh, I, I like uh, you Do you, you, you ever see Flying Circus?
1: I've never played that one, no. Do you ever see it? I don't think so, no. Uh,
2: well, that, that game always intrigued me. Uh, are, you, are you familiar at all with it? Well, It had, you, you... It had the, the, the five balls uh, trapped in a U-shaped... Uh, uh, Area right in the middle of the board, and you had to get the, all five balls on one side to get a free play.
1: Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yes, yes.
2: That, that game always intrigued me. And I'll tell you another game that that I liked that it, that was that could have been a better game than it was, and that was Lightning Ball. There were three uh, rubbers, I think they were, and if you hit them, they would light up the the area would light up uh, under the plastic. And you get all three of them lit, then you got it it gave you an advance. And work and the way it worked off the flipper, you take the, the right flipper and flip to the left side and it would crane off of the left bumper left rubber, onto the center, to the right side and then back onto the left flipper. And then the left flipper would reverse it to go from the to the right ro- right rubber to the center to the left to the back onto the under the the right flipper. And I had, it my original game was made with that line marking the path of that ball. was a red line about a half inch in diameter, a half inch wide, maybe three-eighths of an inch wide, but quite a wide red line going from the right flipper to the left rubber to the center, to the right rubber, to the left flipper. And then you, it, it it was so pronounced, that line, that you could, you could get good at that thing and you could hit that ball back and forth constantly. Well, from I don't know, I did it five, oh, maybe 10, 12 times without missing. And uh, I know the players could have done that and got a kick out of it, got a real thrill out of it. But in the artwork, they, 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 uh, the artist put in a, uh, uh, Parker put in a lightning strike in, in that path Lightning strikes, and it was all all colors—yellow, red, and blue—and all kinds of colors. And you know, it lost. It lost something. And I told them at the time, I said, "You know, that you've got to put a solid line in there." And no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to. This is the way it's going to be. And so, on. and uh, I said, okay, but you're missing. You're missing the point of the game. And uh, that that game could have been a better game than it was. But I, I still like lightning ball. So. As a, as
1: a game yeah, yeah it, it is a very good game it came out in 1959 uh it is you know, it's a single player great great game yep. it really is and i know the shot that you speak of too what do you remember about uh guys and dolls
2: well <laughs>
1: you know it has that funky flipper post arrangement
2: yeah yeah well i know we we're trying to uh, just trying to do something a little different you know i fooled around one day came up with that idea and and uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, the uh, we had a lot of trouble with those posts breaking off, and uh, and we found out that the uh, plastic company used the wrong material on us when we when we gave the order, and so we uh, we had quite a bit of quite a few problems with that game.
1: So that was did you never try it again because of the plastics issue?
2: Well, we we didn't realize at first what happened, you know, and uh, and then uh, we found out that uh, that. Uh, they, they used the wrong material on us, and uh, when we got into production, which was a disaster, you know. So we never went back to it again, and that, you know, I just had a bad, uh, bad feeling. That's all.
1: When you made that game and it was brand new, could you push get the ball to go from the you know from the bottom of the playfield all the way to the top, kind of like it had flippers or something?
2: No, no, you never could.
1: Okay, I was just kind of curious because, and when I played it, it would seem that way too.
2: Oh no, you you couldn't do that just to pop it around a little bit just you know we, we tried so many things and some worked some didn't work some were mediocre try something and you have no idea what's going to happen to it
1: the one thing that always kind of confused me on like the 50s machines was the the it almost seems like there was two methods of scoring you had like the the 10,000s and the 100,000 points, but then you had these single point values, you know, the one through 60 points. What was the purpose of doing this, like, and, and replays were were awarded based on both point systems. What was the purpose of having, like, these two parallel point systems?
2: Well, just a gimmick. Uh, that was just another way of, uh, of uh, putting a feature in the game, you know, like, uh, was it, Double Bill, was it, where, where there were two high scores. Uh, Oh
1: right, right, right. Yes, yes, that's right. It's like uh, um like the two different colors had two different scores. Uh,
2: there's a red score and yellow score, and you know like uh, that game I uh, I, I was uh, uh, thinking of uh, making it a four ball game at the time, and uh, of course you know uh, you had your five ball and your three ball. But I was going to make a four ball game and have like a two player game. You uh, two guys two could play, and you you could uh, you say you were the red player, you'd, you'd try to not hit the yellow one, you know, so give the yellow score, and you'd hit your, try to hit your score, but, uh, you know, a lot of things don't work out, but that was the object of that game.
1: Now, in 1963, with Sweethearts, that was the last game to use gobble holes. Why did you abandon gobble holes at that at that point in time? Because you they had they'd been around, like, God, at least eight years or something.
2: You know you had to keep changing you had to you know you couldn't do the same thing all the time, so you had to you had to try something different uh, you know it wasn't a plan nothing was ever planned you you just did it because uh you had to do something and uh you had to do something different and uh and you tried to uh, make a game that looked different play different to uh you know bring a little life back into the game
1: but um did players uh, complain about the the gobble holes at all?
2: Well, yeah, I think they did at first, but you know, with uh, with uh, uh, Queen of Hearts, uh, that that game was such that they, nobody ever complained about the gobble holes there. Uh, and some games they did, if there wasn't enough meaning to them, and, and I think uh, I think that had the, had had the big uh, uh, that really determined
1: it. Was there? Um I mean, this transition from when you had the trap holes to the gobble holes, was this just two separate ideas that had nothing to do with each other, or was there...
2: Nothing to do with each other at all. Nothing at all, okay.
1: I, I was just wondering, because, you know, they're kind of a similar idea where the ball gets, you know, trapped or whatever, but, you know, uh, you know, if it was some sort of transitionary idea.
2: Yeah, the other one you uh, well, fell through, I, I don't know, just...
1: Just trying different things, right?
2: That's all you're doing, just trying to make something different. And, you know. Now,
1: w- tell me about this thing where, you know, like in 1954 you'd do Dragonette, and then, you know, five months later you'd do Four Bells. And they're essentially the exact same game, but with different artwork. What was the thinking behind And you did that a, a couple different times. You know, I guess if it, maybe if a game was popular or something, what was the thinking there?
2: Well, you know, sometimes we uh, we needed a game in a hurry. If if, uh, if uh, for some reason uh, we needed one, we'd uh, we sometimes we we copied a lot of things, you know, as, as we went along, and and uh, and a lot of features on boards and things were were copied and, and changed around just a little bit. Maybe you didn't recognize them all the time, but but you know you had to take shortcuts to uh, to be able to design so many games a, month, a year that i had to design uh, you know i was making uh, some some years maybe uh, 14 15 games in a year and uh, you know that's uh, you had to take shortcuts and particularly making the four player games i always cobbled things up pretty much so I take a a back gla- a back uh, insert from one game, and I'll, I'll put it in the in the cabinet, and and I, I plug into it and solder into it, and the wires are running all around, you know, to to, to make it work. And uh, uh, sometimes I start from scratch and make uh, do the whole thing, circuits and everything, you know. Sometimes I have to cobble, it, every everything you played it by ear as a, as a, as it was called for at the moment. Business was slow, and and uh, you know, there for a while uh, back. Uh, well, let's say before I was designing, when Harry was designing, we we kept uh, we we built a game and then we uh, set the fact, shut the factory down. It would be down for two, three days, or a week, and sometimes we went on a three-day week because uh, you know there was no business. So uh, uh, what we tried to do was to keep the factory going, keeping everybody employed, and, uh, and that uh, sometimes you had to take some shortcuts, you know, and that's what we did.
1: Right, because like on uh, like Flipper Fair and Crosstown, for example, it seemed like very close. You know, they're years apart, a couple, three years apart, but they're you know, they basically the same playfield layout.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's true. You know, there's only so many things you can do with a playboard and bumpers and, and a flipper and a couple of holes, you know. That, uh, there's only so many things you can do, and uh, sometimes it looks alike, you know. Now, I used to keep a little sketchbook because I, uh, I didn't want to make it too similar, and I'd go back sometimes and look at it because I'd make the same playboard and not even recognize it. Uh, you know, uh, Three or four years later, uh, come up with a board that's too similar, and i have to sh- shuffle around and do something different. Now, in um,
1: 1963, Bally came out with a game called Moonshot, which was basically a copy of your 1962 Tropic Isle game. We're, I mean when something like that happened did that i mean did that make you mad or you just didn't care
2: it made, it made us proud oh <laughs> <laughs> well, we liked it well, you know uh, copy copying is, uh, is uh, means you're doing all right no we didn't we never cared in fact, uh, Gottlieb used to say uh, let of copy uh, you know we don't care uh, we didn't hmm. never thought about it really
1: when you designed the game, did you also design? The whole electronic circuit, too.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, sure. You should have seen the circuit I made on the uh, on uh, the first four-player game. Uh, you know, you know how the you're familiar with the circuits of the four-player games. I'm sure. You you know the player unit and the player relays.
1: Yeah, but that, that game didn't have a player unit. It had like a set of relays that would energize for each one of the four players and that would direct the power to that set of score reels?
2: Well, the first one, first one I made was all done on one disc, on the 86-point unit. I divided it up 80 points. I divided up four sections. That would be 20, 20 uh, steps, which is, four, which is uh, uh, five, uh, five balls, four players. Four times five is 20. So I had I had that disc divided up so I could use all those circuits that were on that disc, and uh, and there were no player, no uh, no relays in there. Uh, that was a circuit, man. That was something. I love that. I love that circuit. But uh, our chief engineer at the time, uh, Bob Smith, he uh, uh, he thought uh, we overworked the unit and that we'd have to make a different unit entirely to handle that load. And uh, and you know we don't know how many of these games we're going to make. It may be only this, the only game we're going to make is this one. So what's the point in, in building a new step switch to handle such a circuit? And uh, and so we we didn't know whether we would build a, another game after uh, after the first one. You know, jumbo uh, was unknown, and and uh, the results we we had no idea whether we'd ever sell any of them. And so in order to get the game built, why, uh, uh that that made the most sense to me too. You know, I said I'll buy that. Because uh, although I, I love my circuit that I drew up, I drew at least two circuits. I don't know, maybe I drew more than that. But I, I thought I drew three, but I've only been able to find two. So I, I maybe that's all I did.
1: Do, no, you had a guy that that's all he did was draw circuits.
2: Draw, yeah. We had a, a, a draft. Well, actually, we had two draftsmen, and then you know, one of them kind of went into uh, doing other things, mainly uh, mainly handling the parts uh, of. The, of the, parts list and that t- sort of thing. But he did drawing, too. But we had, uh, I'd say, one and a half draftsmen going full-time. And when we went into Super Jumbo, of course, uh, that was such a big uh, changeover that uh, our engineering room was overtaxed, and uh, and I got the job of, uh, of uh, doing that circuit on Super Jumbo. I, I always like to draw, and I, I had fun drawing, and I didn't mind drawing, so they give it to me once in a while.
1: On a lot of the coils, the coil numbers um, were like an A series or a D. A D series seemed to think that that A meant Alvin and the D meant David, but I.
2: I didn't. No, no, no. No. It would have nothing to do with that. Okay. So we, we kept personal things out of our circuits and out of our games, and uh, we, we never put any personal things in any of those, any, anyway. The only, well, I'll take that back. The AG relay was named after Alvin Gottlieb. That, that's the only thing I can remember ever bringing somebody else into it.
1: Now, why on that one?
2: I don't know. Just, uh, a, a Garbark, a Doc uh, Garbark, he made the relay, and, and, uh, I don't know. We're just, uh, sitting around. We had to give it a name, you know, We got to name that thing, and, and I don't know how it's come up. <laughs> And name it after Elvin, you know. And uh, that, that's what we did. But that that's the only thing I can remember offhand. You know, maybe there are other things that I, I I don't think of offhand, you
1: know. Now when you when you needed a new stepper unit or something, was that stuff all made there at the Gottlieb factory or was it oh, yeah. outsourced? We made it all. Yeah. So did you have to do the drawings for uh, you know, a new stepper unit as it was required?
2: Yeah, uh we had a, uh, a mechanical draftsman, uh, Roman Garbark, He was our our chief uh, mechanical engineer and uh he would uh, make all those things. Yeah, he was he was good. Uh, yep. And our tool room would uh, make the t- the dies.
1: When you were designing games, did you have a preference whether you liked to design single players or multiplayers better?
2: Well, I tell you, I like the best of all. Why? I don't know. Just fun to play.
1: It, and speaking of Adda why would they design like an Adda for the states, and then a a separate one like for Italy or something
0: like that?
2: Well, the the laws were varied in uh, Italy, particularly. You couldn't uh, indicate uh, that they were going to win anything. There, there was you couldn't indicate anything. That's why they were put into symbols or. Uh, uh, oh, we use various things that uh, disguise the fact that you uh, had extra balls.
1: Let's take a break from talking with Wayne Nyans, and we'll be right back after this word. Hey, George, I just had to call and tell you about this really great magazine I got. It's called the Pin Game Journal, and it's the only magazine dedicated totally to pinball. It's got great articles and interviews with designers and everything. No, George, I won't loan you my copy. Who knows where you'll take it to? You're going to have to go to PingGameJournal.com and get your own subscription. But, George, the guy says that each issue will get mailed whenever he feels like it. What's the deal with that? All right, George, I got to go. Got to call Elaine and tell her. I can't believe how good this magazine is. All right, we're back with Wayne Nyans. Wayne, again, was a primary game designer at Gottlieb from 1951 to 1965. Now, tell me about Roy Parker. Did you know him very well?
2: Oh, sure. I knew Roy very well. In fact, I was out to his house a couple of times. Uh, yeah, Roy was a great guy. You know, he was not uh, not like our other uh, artists. Uh, uh, he he was he was good. He he, he was a uh, you know he he used to draw such comical pictures. So many of them were so clever, like Barnacle Bill. You know, beautiful, beautiful humor. But he, he had no humor. And he, he never played pinball. He'd come to the showroom and uh, uh, he would uh, do his thing seriously. And, and if we didn't like what he did, why, he would go home and correct it and be back in the morning with a, with a correction. But uh, he never stopped and played the games. Never.
1: So, so he had like a, like a real dry, dull sense of humor, but his artwork was like unbelievably comical.
2: Very, very much so. That's right.
1: You were doing a game. You know, you designed the game, and then it went over to um, uh, you know, over to Roy Parker for the for the artwork. Did you give him the theme, or did he uh, come up with the theme?
2: Uh, both. Uh, normally, we had the theme. Once in a while, it'd be just a game. You know, with no theme connected with it. And uh, we tell him, what, "What? Here's the here's the layout, uh, uh, Parker, and uh, you uh, see what you come up with." And he'd come up with something, but but I'd say nine out of ten times we gave him the theme. Okay, now out of the playboard, we gave him a drawing, uh, exactly how it was, and then he would go from there. Very much. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Now, did he work for Gottlieb, or did he work for Ad Poster, or how how was he contracted, or, or well, he how...
2: Originally, originally worked for a company called Reproduction, and they burned down. They had a fire. And then we went to uh, Ad Posters, and he worked over there. Uh, at uh, the, they were kind enough to let him work there and do his thing there, and they did our artwork, our, our our screening for us at that time. Then when uh, when they got back, uh, uh, when reproduction got back in in business again, Parker went back over there and worked uh, and and did our work for us. But then they burned down a second time, and this time they never rebuilt. So we stayed with uh, Ad Posters, and, uh, and so uh, then uh, Parker uh, worked over there. and They paid Parker. We didn't pay him. They paid him. And, uh, but he worked s- strictly for us. Now, a lot of people say that he did other people's work, but uh, maybe he did, but Parker said he never did. And, uh, and if Parker says he didn't do it, that, that's good enough for me, because he, he, uh, he was a gentleman. He was he was something else.
1: Now was was he like Dave Gottlieb's favorite or just everybody's favorite?
2: He was everybody's
1: favorite.
2: You know, the next one after when he when he died, you know, then we we got our, uh Gordon Stenholm, and Gordon did uh, oh I don't know a few games. Then then we got Gordon Morrison in, and Gordon was just the opposite. He was the opposite of Parker. You know, he was a. I thought he was a kid, you know, and here he died not too many years ago, and and uh, I, I didn't realize he was as old as he was, but uh, he was a he was a character, and and he would uh, he uh, he ran around a lot with women, you know, and and uh, he uh, he used to try to sneak the girls' names in on the pictures, you know, and and uh, he'd draw them in and, and, and so on, and uh, I'd catch him every once in a while, and, and he would try to uh, outfox me, you know, and so I wouldn't see anything. He'd hide them in there, hide the girls' names, thinking he was getting away with something. But uh, uh, Parker would never do a thing like that, and I know a lot of people say that so some glasses uh, are uh, that's Dave's in there, that's Dave's picture, and that's his family's picture, and all that. But uh, Parker didn't do that, and he, he said he never did, and, and I take him as word as he didn't do it.
1: So yeah, like for example, the rumor is on Crisscross, Cross, which was a 1958 game, uh, single player that there's a skier on there with a couple like snow bunnies, and the, the a lot of people said that the skier who's kind of crashed, he's got his skis crossed. That that was David Gottlieb. That was a, a big rumor. But you're saying that's you don't believe that to be the case. Never.
2: He he never did, and uh, uh, and you know if you knew Parker, you know he would not do that. He uh, he was too sedate. He was um, he was a gentleman. He was a real gentleman, and uh, uh, not outgoing. He didn't. Uh, he wasn't. You know, artists are sometimes temperamental. They, they, they didn't take criticism well. But uh, when Parker'd come over with something, uh, if we didn't like it, we'd say, "Look, uh, Parker, uh, um, that girl is uh, too uh, scanty, scantily dressed, or whatever, you know." And, and he, would oh, okay. So he'd take his pen or pencil and he just he'd make a couple little marks and and uh, you know and he'd fix it up. And never, never was hurt by our criticism. And and uh, if if we uh, we didn't like something, uh, didn't like his drawing at all, why uh, he would go home. He had a studio at home, and he would go home at night and uh, he'd leave our place. He'd usually come over around three o'clock, three or four in the afternoon. And then uh, he'd go home and uh, and he'd work at night at his home and and he'd be there in the morning with a change, you know. And uh, uh, he was he was a great guy. We we loved him and uh, and he he liked us too. We we got along well together.
1: Well, for for being a <clears throat> excuse me a real conservative guy, he did draw some pretty sexy women on some of those back glasses. How how was you, I mean? Was your reaction, David Gottliebs, and your reaction was that. Generally okay or I mean how often uh, we, did you... we
2: toned them down quite a bit <laughs> we, we did uh, we, we toned them down quite a bit so but, uh, some of them are a little risque but not uh, considering the time I guess they were you know but we were we were aiming for that age group of uh, young men you know sixteen to twenty four or five six uh, we were aiming for that group and you see most of the classes are sort of Oriented in that direction, and I think the games were too. Uh, uh, I, I I built things that I liked, you know, and I, I thought I was I was young for my age, I think, and I, I probably still am. But uh, I I I could see the games as a, as a young player, and I enjoy enjoyed playing them as a young player.
1: Now, after a period in like nineteen fifty five and fifty six the number of replays that you could win, unlike a gobble hole or, or a special or whatever, seemed to go down. Was there any reasoning for that? You know, like the the, the Sweet Adeline where you could win 26 credits. and oh, yeah. yeah okay. and, and some of the other games. It seemed like with World Champ in 1957, it was the end of that era where you dump a ball in the gobble hole and you win on just a whole pile of of uh replays it seemed like that was the last game to really do that is there, what was the reasoning for toning down the number of replays to be won in any particular game
2: well i don't know whether we had a real reason or not but uh, uh i don't think we really had a reason for it it's just how the games happen to come out you know you know uh, everything isn't planned you know it, it, it's uh, designing is not a, a planned out thing. You, you, you just do things, and uh, and you do something and you like it, and you say, oh, yeah, this is good, you know, this is what I'm going to
1: do. The Minstrel Man was was the first game with drop targets in 1951. The Wild West, it was an Indian. When you hit the target, a Solenoid would pull in that would suck the Indian down underneath the play field and hold him down for maybe a second, and then he would spring back up. Right around 1970 with Crescendo, um, there started to be a lot of, drop targets in the games all of a sudden what what was uh, i mean what was the uh, you know the change to start doing that was it just something you were trying
2: see that was krinsky's designing at that time and he uh, he liked drop targets he used them a lot you have to be so careful when you design things of course that the, the timing of the game and the percentage of the game uh, these are all important things
1: now did you have separate game Testers, the guys that actually came in and would play 100 or 200 games on a game to, to actually test it out for you.
2: Oh yeah, when uh, to, we had to do that to percentages. In fact, uh, when we were on uh, in uh, in the North Lake, uh, we uh, had
0: a real good engineering
2: room there. We we made it special. In fact, I designed that room, and it was in a series of rooms. And one one of the smaller rooms. Was our, our our playing room, and we had games and We did nothing but play in that room, and, uh, and we had uh, well. Every once in a while, we we'd assign uh, somebody, you know, to play a game, and uh, and we percentage it. We kept track of uh, how long it took to play a game, uh, number of free plays won, and that type of thing, you know. Because uh, you had you know, uh, timing was very important. How long a game played. Uh, how many free plays are won? You know, those are the things that enter into uh, the machine, whether the machine made money or not. If you, had a, if you had a game that played uh, 15 or 20 minutes on every every nickel. Uh, it, the machine couldn't make any money. And uh, if they won, uh, say 80 uh, percent free plays, it wouldn't make any money. So we had to have a percentage, of say uh, 45, 50 percent free plays, and uh, no more than two and a half minutes to play a game. Shot for those things, you know, and uh, if uh, if the guys uh, playing the game uh, played too long, or time was too long, we had to do something to to speed it up a little bit, boost a little bit, or uh, you
1: know, whatever. So, you would shoot for a replay value of of 40 or 50 percent?
2: Yeah, Yeah, we go up about 40 percent.
1: Was that during the just during, during all eras, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s?
2: Yeah, well, I think I don't think to change any
1: wow because like today the free play percentage is usually you know maybe seven or eight percent
2: well today they don't know how to make games today they're not they're not going for the customers the amount of equipment that that I was limited to all the time was very little uh, you no know, there's so much fixed cost in the game you got your your cabinet your glass your 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 playboard your screens your your transformers, coin mechanisms, uh, legs, cabinets, the whole thing, you know. It's so much fixed cost. So what have you got to work with when you come down with it? you got score units are fixed. Um, so you only have a, a, a few dollars to work with. So you're, you're always limited to what you can put in a game. And uh, and they would, the old Tony Girard would come in and look at my games when I get through them. And he'd say, hey. I count those relays, there's so many relays, there's 18 relays in there, you can only have 16, you know, that type of thing. And I say, but Tony, I just took one out. Oh, well, then okay, you know. (laughs) But that was the thinking, you know, they they counted every little thing you put in the game. How many step switches can you add to a game? How can you add this to it? And uh, animation is an example. There's money. Uh, When you put animation in a game, you had to take out something else. Uh, it was always a fight for cost. And, uh, and, uh, and maybe, uh, at that particular time, uh, uh the, the thinking was that, uh, I, know, I had to tone down the number of free plays we were going to win. Uh, uh, the features that, that contributed to that.
1: In, in the 70s, like when you would have, you know, all these multiplayers and you'd have single players, did you guys actually sit down and say, okay, we're going to do, you know, uh, eight multiplayer games this year and four single players?
2: No, no. Uh-uh. So, what... Was just, you, you know, you'd think everything was planned out, but uh, nothing was planned out. We, uh, we'd go in by the seat of our pants at all times, you know, uh, whatever we thought the market would bear. But, you know, when we were building uh, uh, single-player, uh, four-player, two-player, and add-a-ball, uh, all at the same time, uh, we had Various territories. It would only take, uh, like a four-player, as an example, and uh, like uh, like uh, France and Germany. But uh, if we ran single-player too long, they, they were squawking the distributors. Hey, come on, we need a we need a four-player. We need a four-player. Come on, let make, get us a four-player. and Then uh, so and that would determine which team next. You know, it, it, it was all uh, the market demanded certain things.
1: Now, did the market demand certain themes like you know the Gottlieb like like to use card themes and Western themes?
2: Never, no. they never never had any input whatsoever.
1: Now, did you guys like particular themes?
2: I I like particular themes. I like sports themes mainly. I I did a lot of sports games. I like sports and uh, and uh, current events. Uh, you you see a lot of current events like. Uh, well, Spirit of '76 would have been the most outstanding one. But coronation—I was at the time of uh, coronating the Queen of England. Um, I don't know history had something to do with it, and songs—a lot of popular songs at that time would be uh, would, uh, would bring up a song. And,
0: and uh,
2: I don't know I liked the railroading, so I had several several railroad themes.
1: Who was the card? Somebody obviously had to be a card player there.
2: (laughs) No, but I tell you why we made a lot of card games. They're very popular. Uh, All people can understand cards. Uh, Most people can understand cards. So cards is a very popular theme.
1: Same thing with bowling. Another popular, well understood theme. You
2: know know, things that uh, most people understand. uh, We try to do. You wouldn't. uh, You wouldn't have a chess game as an example because. It's, it's, it's a great game, but it's not that many people play it. So you wouldn't you wouldn't even think of it, putting a chess thing on a, on a pinball machine.
1: Now, who came up with the roto target in 1957? Whose idea was that?
2: Boy, I don't know.
1: That that seemed like one expensive playfield toy.
2: It was. It was, and uh, I I think it was. Well, you know, it was, it was a combination of things. It, it, was, it came from a step switch. We had step switches, and we were going to just step it around, you know, step the target around. That's what I was going to do. And then, I don't know, somebody suggested spinning it. You know, well, gee, that, that makes sense. So then it went to that, and uh, so I got that unit made up, and then I put it in the game. But, you know, it's kind of things grow. They, uh, they start out with one thing, and it grows to something else. And that's how that spinner came in. But it was a great, that rotor target, we use that an awful lot of games.
1: Right, it seemed to be pretty popular.
2: Very popular, very popular.
1: Now, the transition from like, uh, you know, wooden legs to metal legs and wooden coin door to metal coin door, was that dictated by you guys or was that dictated by the cabinet company?
2: Oh, no, that was dictated by us. We could save money. You know those steel legs cost about half the price of a wooden leg. You know, and, and it's amazing. And same with, that, uh, with the, uh, with the uh, molding. Um, that molding that went on those cabinets is very expensive. And we can make it out of stainless steel, punch it out in our punch presses for a lot less money. We, in fact, we save I don't know how many dollars per game on legs alone by going to the metal legs. And it was the same thing with the ball arch, like the lower and upper ball arches went from... Absolutely. Same thing. Same thing. Okay. And you know, and it looked better. When you got through it, it looked better. Right. Now, are you saying that in 1960,
1: when you went from the the wooden side rails to the metal rails, that that was a big uh, cost savings? That was a saving, yes. Definitely. Okay. Now, why did Roy Parker not do... Cabinet artwork. I mean, the car, the artwork on the side of Gatling Games was very, you know, uh, um, you know, dimensional, geographic dimensions, and that. But it didn't. It wasn't. It never had artwork that reflected the theme of the game. Why was that?
2: Well, that that was done by the cabinet company. They they did all that that work. They they had to make stencils, you know, and that uh, to do that. And and they uh, they did the artwork on this on the side. So that had nothing
1: to do with you guys at all, then.
2: Well, we had to pick out the design. Yeah. Dave Gottlieb had a uh, had a a piece of plastic with a shape of a pinball machine cut out in it. And anybody come along, come in to visit with a with a fancy tie, he'd take their tie and he'd hold it up under that that piece of plastic and look at it. What it would look like on a pinball cabinet, you know. And sometimes he'd take the design from the tie. But. a lot, of, a lot of times, uh, you, you, a lot of times, for a long period of time, we had red, white, and blue cabinets. That's all we ever had, and that was because of Dave. He liked red, white, and blue.
1: Now, when you went to using score reels, you know, on the single players, on basically everything in 1960, everything got score reels. There was no longer the light box style scoring. Was that a savings of money, or did that cost you more, or was that just something you had to do?
2: Well, that that cost more money. That cost more money. That was a that was an added expense, but it was better.
1: It was better. So they had no problems uh, implementing that design
0: then.
2: No, I, I think I think uh, we weren't the first ones to come out with real scoring. I, I think Williams came out with it first, didn't
1: they? Yes, that's correct. They came out with it for in 1954 for a short period, and then they stopped using it, and then. Everybody started going to multiplayers like you guys did, and then of course you had to use it in multiplayers because there wasn't enough room on the back glass to score with lightbox scoring on a multiplayer.
2: Uh, that's right.
1: Okay. Now, it, during the sixties, you, you know the the cabinet changed to the to the famous wedgehead design. Was that something that you guys designed and implemented, or was that again the cabinet company?
2: Oh, well, we did that. We wanted something to look a little different, Data, data game, and, you know, so we did, we did that.
1: Now, in the 60s, what, uh, what were some of your favorite games that you designed that you really liked?
2: In the 60s? Well, let's see. Uh, I don't know. I, I liked a lot of games, of course, but I, I tell you, I, uh, I liked all the attaball games. That, to me, was uh, the ultimate game. Adiball. Now, I'll tell you, in in our showroom, we had uh, uh, we always had uh, the games lined up, all of the, the the games that were in production, the ones that were coming up, and so forth. So we had maybe four or five in the showroom, and uh, we always had the ball in there. And and around four o'clock, four thirty, why we'd all kind of gravitate into the showroom, we'd talk and and uh, and play games and and uh, kind of bits a little bit. And the first one in the showroom always went to the add-a-ball game. We like to play add
1: Now, in in the showroom, did you have those games set for replay? or I mean, for free play, or were they oh, uh, uh, money? Free play. You, oh, did. you did? You had them set for
2: free You fired play. in, so you play it for nothing, sure. Now, who came up with the add-a-ball game idea? I did. Actually, actually uh, what happened was uh, Elvin, Elvin Gottlieb, you know who he is. He's the son, sure. Dave's son. He he went down to Texas. Texas was dying. You know. they couldn't run free plays, and uh, he was down there. Uh, one of our distributors down there, and, and they were begging him to, to help him out to get make free plays legal in the state. You know, uh, maybe they wanted money. I don't know what it was. But anyway, they they were begging him to do something, and. Um, so he said, well, I'll see what I can do. So he came back, and he came in to see me, and, and he said, you know, we got to do something to help out Texas. we got to make a game that has no free plays because they, they can't have free plays down there. And so I said, well, okay, I'll see what I can do. You know, And so I got thinking about it, and uh, I, had, I, I got the idea, and, and I built the game. And, uh, and I called it Flipper. And, uh, and the reason why I called it Flipper was that that's a game that Harry put on the first uh, flipper game, which ended up as Humpty Dumpty? See that that game, Humpty Dumpty, uh, being the first flipper game, was called Flipper, and it was a lot. It was it didn't warrant such a, a, a wonderful uh, invention. It, it it was a simple game. And, uh, and, uh, and the glass was made, all the artwork was done, the game was finished, ready to go into production. And Dave came in one morning and he said, no sir, we're going to jazz that game up a little bit, and we're going to call it Humpty Dumpty, we're going to make a nursery rhyme out of it. And he called Parker in and uh, told him what he wanted, and, and Parker did a fabulous job on that game, I think at one of the prettiest classes. And uh and we changed the uh the the playboard. Not not the actual working of the playboard, but we changed the bumpers around. There were there on Humpy Dumpty there were four bumpers and uh two in the top and two in the bottom. And uh they were just score bumpers and so we put a little four number sequence in there. And I think we call I don't know whether they call it A, B, C, D or one, two, three, four, whatever it was. But we added that to the game and we did several things to the scoring and we came out with Humpty Dumpty. And so I was always disappointed that we didn't use the word flipper. I thought that was a great name. And so when we made the add-a-ball, the first add-a-ball, I drew up the, the glass that I wanted and I called flipper. Big red letters across the top of that sucker. And, uh, and when Dave came in and he played it and enjoyed it, and, and I said, you know, Dave, we got to call this game flipper. That's the game. And he said, you're right. That's what it's going to be. And that's the way it ended up, Flipper. Hmm. Now, in the
1: '60s, you started to use more back box animation, which you said was fairly expensive. How did you get away with that? Like on Flipper Cowboy and and Buckaroo and Cowpoke and Flipper Parade and Flipper Clown and Crosstown with the elevators and um, uh, Skyline with the elevators. How did you know? It seemed like those were expensive animation units.
2: Well, they were, but they were part of the game. You know, they really. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe the game would have been just as good without it, but it it was part of the game. Um, like, I don't know. <laughs> we we had other other animations that were too expensive. We couldn't do it, but uh, we we got those in. You know. Well, what ones did you were you unable to do that were too expensive? Uh, I'm trying to think of one that. Uh, um, one with the toy soldiers. Anyway, uh, it was an awfully expensive thing, and that's right when we ended it, right there. We said that's the end of that. But um, uh, money was always a problem for us. Uh, what, what, what was the name of that one that had the dancing doll? Yeah, Dancing
1: Lady, 1966, right?
2: That was the one. Is that, That's the one that had the girl on the string? Right. We had a fish line on there, a nylon line that held the girl. And we had a motor that revolved, wasn't that it? And uh, we didn't know how to tie that fish line. So one of, our, one of our engineers was a fisherman. And he said, I'll teach you guys how to tie a fish line. So he taught us all how to tie a nylon line so we could make the doll run. And then I go out in the shop and teach the guys out in the shop how to do it. Yeah, a lot of interesting things happened.
1: Now the uh towards the mid nineteen sixties, uh, you know, around Buckaroo and Cowpoke, you seemed to, to stop doing a lot of game designing. Why was that?
2: Well, I did it all until uh until um, let's see, when did I when did I stop? About
1: uh... Well, about mid nineteen sixty five. Yeah, it seemed like you, you slowed down and, and cowpoke was like your last one and in and, and uh June of 65 and
2: then you went to not, you didn't design a game until 68 with like Paul Bunyan and. yeah Paul Bunyan we needed a game you know and when I designed that game and I got through I said you know I'll never design another game anyone who can design a game like that don't deserve to design game <laughs> certainly wasn't my favorite game although I've had some people tell me they like the game but uh, but you know at that, about that time I, I quit designing uh, Ed Krinsky came in we hired Ed Krensky as a designer, and uh, our, our superintendent of, uh, of the factory uh, was, became ill and uh, had to leave the th- leave and go on leave, and uh, he never came back, of course. And, uh, and Bob Smith moved up into the uh, uh, into the uh, superintendent's job, but well, we needed a chief engineer, so uh, they called me in the office and uh, says. Wait, he says, uh, "Well, would would you like to have the job? You know, I said, yeah, I would like to have the job. See, we got Ed Krinsky here now. What, you don't need me to design games. We got Ed, you know, and, and I can help him out and, and uh, do the job. And so I got the job as chief engineer, and that's how uh, I. Uh, that's how we kind of we we kind of uh, melded together. I, I moved in the engineering room, and he moved in the design room, and then we worked back and forth, and." And then I didn't do any designing. He did all the designing, except when uh, we got to uh, Paul Bunyan, and we were, we needed a game, and uh, 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 Kritsky was running a little a little short, and uh, I well, I, in my spare time I'll, I'll make a, I'll make up a game, you know. And so I, <laughs> I made Paul Bunyan, and after we got through and, uh, and it was in production and everything, and I played the game, and I said, you know, this this is not my my standard. I will tell you that I I can do better than this, but. If I'm going to, if I, I'm so busy uh, running everything else in the shop, uh, I can't, uh, I can't, can't design. I can't, I, I can't think like that anymore. And don't ever ask me to design another game. So I never did, never did. Well,
1: one that you did design after that was the 1971 head-to-head
2: game, Challenger, right? Well, I didn't. I, I don't claim that. You know, I, I, that was, that was designed by a, a committee. I was involved, there was uh, Bob Smith was involved, Ed, uh, Ed Kritsky was involved, Elvin was involved, and we, we all had our two cents worth, you know, and we always kidded about it, said that, we, that was designed by a committee and it, it looks like a camel. It, uh, it, 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 it didn't have the coherence that you wanted. One, you can't have more than one guy designing something. You, you can't have two guys or three or four five, all putting their two cents in. It just don't work like that. You, you can't do it. It's One person has to do it. And uh, so we, we made the game and uh,
0: and,
2: uh, and I tell you, that, uh, that uh, there's a story there I can tell you, too, if you're interested in it.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: Uh, we uh, we made, oh, I don't know, maybe three four hundred of them, something like that, and uh, put them out. And none of them made any money. They were they were, uh, they were just—they just didn't make money. Nobody play them, so um, we we only made that many. And so uh, three or four or five months went by, and, and a guy comes in one day from uh, Canada, Western Canada, one of the provinces over there. And uh, he tell, tell, uh, he's talking to Dave, see, and Dave calls us all in the office. We're all sitting there talking with this guy. And he wanted to buy two hundred Challengers, and Dave says, "You know." That game will not make you any money. You'll lose money on this, and you, you don't don't do it. You can't this. And he's trying to talk him out of it. And the guy says, "I know my territory, and I know it'll do make me money, and it'll do this and that and the other." And Dave says, "I'll tell you what." He says, "Don't say I didn't warn you now that you're you're going to lose your shirt on this, but if you pay me ahead up ahead, I'll build the 200 games for you." And the guy says, "Okay," and he writes him out a check for the 200 games. And we built them, and we shipped them up there, and the guy went bankrupt. He lost his shirt. It's <laughs> a pretty good story, actually. Dave, uh, Dave told him, and I was standing right there listening in on it. And I, I couldn't believe it. You know, Dave, says, you're going to lose your shirt on it. Don't buy them, but if you want them, don't say I didn't warn you. And that's what happened. But now, it was a lousy game.
1: Now, the one of the last things you did was the spirit of 76 and pioneer in uh, in 1976 tell tell me about that that game sold like gangbusters
2: it sure did and did you ever hear the story about how I got the game
1: I heard that you made some sort of a bet
2: well I tell you what we were sitting around the dining room table one uh, one day after we were about ready to go into production we had uh, you know it was about 3 or 4 months out from production date and we were talking about the game and uh, all of the, uh, the top echelon was there. And uh, Judd Jud was in charge of the company at that time, Judd Weinberg. And uh, he says, uh, we got to pick out a number so we can start ordering parts for uh, challenger, or for uh, Spirit of 76. And uh, he says, how many games do you think we're going to build, fellas? And so one guy would say 3,000. Another one would say 2,800. Another one, 3500 4000 around the table. I didn't say anything, see. So we got all around the table, and, and Jed says, Wayne, what, what about you? Well, you didn't say nothing. You know, you always got your two cents in here. And I said, Jed, if I tell you what I I think, well, you'd laugh, you know. Everybody laughed. And he's all, oh, come on now, you know, come on, come on. I said, well, okay, I say 10000 Well, everybody laughed. It was unheard of. So... Uh, Judges, I'll tell you what I'll do, Wayne. If we build 10,000 games, that 10,000 game is yours. I'll bring it over to your house, set it up for you. I you've got a deal. Well, we made 10,000 games, and the 10,000 game is still sitting in my garage out here. I still have it, and I still play it almost every day.
1: Now, why did you get corralled back into designing? I mean, you hadn't designed a game since 1971, The Challenger. You know, by committee with that one, yeah. and really before that with Paul Bunyan, and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you do one in in, in late '75, and, and the thing sells like gangbusters.
2: Well, no, that see, that uh, that that uh, is a little misconception. I I didn't design that game. Uh, I I did and I didn't. The, Krinsky actually designed the game, but uh, it was uh, the the rules of the game was uh, was different and uh, and uh, he could and everybody was trying to tell him what to do with it you know cuz i wanted to build and and for 2 years before 2 years before 76 that would be 74 i started thinking of this game cuz you know the, the bicentennial was coming up and i wanted a game made specifically for that era and i knew what i wanted red white and blue and a and a flashy name and a, and a and a great game, you know. And so I went to Krinsky about uh, several months, maybe a year before the, the game is to be built. And I told him what I wanted. You know, I wanted uh, the best game you ever made has got to be this one, you know. And we're going to we're going to really hit hard with a red, white, and blue. And uh, and so he made the game, uh, made the playboard. The game rules, I, I'm more or less made up, so I, I, I don't really claim the design. I don't claim that at all, but I had a part of it. I had a part of it. But you know, the thing was that that nobody nobody realized at that time that the bicentennial was so going to be so big. Everybody wanted this game. I knew this when I when I started two years before that. I knew that if I could make a game that was a good game and come out in that year with red, white, and blue, with an American flag flying all over the place, every location would have to have one. They have to have it. So when I said 10,000 games, I wasn't fooling. I I felt it. I thought that, sure, 3,500, 3,500 would probably be a good number, but, but double that, triple it, because... Every location will want one. It's this big thing. And at and, and that time, it was it, tremendous. Uh, uh, people, everyone, were red, white, and blue. And so I knew we were going to make a lot of games. And, and so when I said that, I, I wasn't kidding. I, I really felt it. And uh, so we made, I think, uh, oh, I don't know, 1,200, 1,100, 1, something like that. And then we went and made Pioneer, which you sold, I don't know, two, 3,000, something like that. I forgot the numbers. But uh, something like that. So we made about thirteen thousand altogether. That that layout, you know, and uh, that was that was a great game. And I and I I still like my game. And you know, there's a feature on there. Are, are you familiar with the game?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, I am familiar
2: with the game. You yes, know, that uh, that uh, uh, that center hole uh, has uh, when you knock all the targets down, you you get double bonus, and if it's on the last ball, you get double double. And so you can get a tremendous score on that last ball. And you know as many times as I've played that game of mine, I've never, never gotten double-double. And I've played it and played it and played it, and I've never done it. And and I fight that game all the time.
1: I, I, I should state that you're you've, you're actually known as a
2: very, very good pinball player, too. Well, I, I used to play pretty good, but I don't play very good anymore. I, I'm getting too old I, I can't, uh, I can't react fast enough, you know, but I, I still play a pretty good game. But I, uh, but uh, I, I've, uh, I've lost a little bit, unfortunately.
1: Now, what did you think when Dave Gottlieb sold the company to Columbia Pictures? What was your thinking when that happened?
2: Well, I, I was uh, disappointed. Um, you know, I always worked for a, uh, a. Uh, the owner of the company. I, when I worked at Western, I worked for Jimmy Johnson, uh, who I knew personally. Then I went with Dave, and I knew him personally. And uh, in fact, I was a, sort of a member of the family, you know. And then when we went to Columbia Pictures, um, things changed immediately. Uh, I couldn't buy things. Before that, I could buy anything. If I wanted a computer, I'd go out and buy it, you know. Uh, I didn't have to go to anybody. I, I just go in the office and write me out a check for this, write me out a check for that. I I get it. I didn't have to do nothing. Once Columbia took over, I had a right uh, to to New York and, and get permission to do to do anything, you know. And I uh, I didn't like that, so I only worked a few years and then I, I left. I left in 1980. But uh, if if uh, if it had been remained uh, uh, with Judd in charge of that company, I'd probably still be there. It, it was a different world now how did you feel
1: when they went to um the solid state you know they they didn't do the electromechanical anymore and they went to the solid state you know computer scoring and that how
2: did you yeah. feel about that well, I, I didn't like it at all of course i that's not my cup of tea i i'm i i was born and raised on relays you know and uh and i and timing and motors and step switches and those things I understand computers I can't understand I, I still can't understand them. but I had to learn in a hurry and I, I did uh, enough to keep up with our uh, electronic engineers I could uh, I could converse with them <laughs> fairly intelligently but but I I didn't like it I uh, I, I don't think the games are ever the same uh, you know you, you miss that uh, that feel uh, Pin games have a feel, and you, you feel the units uh, stepping, and, and you hear the relays clicking, and the, and the, and the chimes—they're different. You know, it's—we it's, um, it, we lost something in the pinball industry at that time. I, I'm sure of it. No. I, I think uh, uh, that. The old mechanical games were by far the, the fun games to play.
1: Well, the one thing about your games that was always stuck out to me is that the, the goal of the game, you know, to get, win the replay, your games would get you within an inch of that goal, but most often you didn't get it. So you always wanted to play again because you felt like, you know, I got so close on the last game
2: that I could do it on this game.
0: That's right, and exactly
2: right. And I I tried to build that into all games, but you know sometimes I succeeded, sometimes I didn't. You know there were a lot of dogs. I made a lot of dogs too. That uh, I don't know. Some of them were pretty good. I like. I still like to play some of them. <laughs> when I go to the, when I go up to the Expo, I, uh, there's some games I play, and I just have a ball. You know, thinking back on, on uh, when I first made the first one uh, on the, what what they now call the whiteboard. How did you feel about the Slick Chick, for example? Well, I, I like Slick Chick, but I didn't think it was my best game. You know how it got the name. I guess you heard the story about that. No, why don't you tell me? Um, well, I don't know. I, I think I called it... Um,
1: that would be Party Girls.
2: The name was a little bit too risque, and, and uh, they didn't want to use it. And uh, I was going over to a uh, friend's house on Sunday night. It's a cold winter night, I remember, and we were going over there for supper. And as I turned down this corner... At his house, there was a new restaurant that just opened up, and and uh, there the name was uh, yeah. unbelievable. Uh, Guy, there's the name of the game right there. Uh, Slick chick, uh, what a name, you know. And that's so. I went to work the next day and put it in the game. Slick chick, uh, and that's how the name, how it got the name. Yes, I like that game very much, uh, but. Uh, there's a lot of games I like but i, I like I liked uh, 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 sweet Adeline I, I liked uh, uh, lightning ball that was one of my favorite games Lightning Ball, because I, I could play it I can handle that game so well um, but let's see the one I don't care for here dancing lady i, I that's the name I didn't care for. that's the one that had the uh, the dancing girl on there. I never cared much for that game.
1: When Gottlieb went to the solid state thing, you, you guys hired Rockwell to kind of handle that whole solid state uh, board system. Why didn't you guys design that in house like, say, Williams and Bally and did?
2: Well, we didn't have time. See, you know, uh, it, it's hard to understand why we were going so gangbusters. You know, we were going wide open. We were building probably four or 500 games a day, and uh, we, we were moving. And uh, we thought it would last forever. Uh, Solid state uh, hardly entered our mind. We knew it was there, and we knew it was coming, but we were so busy. And uh, I had hired a I had hired a uh, a, a electrical engineer, a solid state engineer, and uh, he he worked for a uh, uh, he had been working for some kind of an organ company, I think it was, and uh, they laid him off. And uh, so he came asking for a job, and I said, you know, we're looking for someone to build a solid state game for us, and um, how would you like to do that? And he said, oh, I'd like to do that. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. So I said, well, now, one thing I want to make sure that if I hire you, you're going to stay here and not leave as soon as you get another job in the music industry. He said, oh, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to stay. I'll, I'll stay forever. I'll, I'll do this and I'll build your game. And he worked for about six months and got started on it and and uh, walked out it one, one morning went back and got another job in an organ company so you know uh, we we got off to a bad start and I was so busy building uh, mechanical games uh, when we finally had to had to do something uh, we the fastest thing to do was to hire somebody a company and we hired Rockwell to do it and uh, I think it ended up they didn't do too good a job but uh, but uh, they got us into it in a hurry, and uh, you know and, uh, we we uh, it was really i think probably a good part of it was my fault that we didn't get into it sooner, but, uh, but I was busy building mechanical games, and uh, I don't know just it was out of my out of my league, I guess you know
1: hmm. and and did you i mean Looking back on it, how long did that Rockwell thing take for them to, to design that, that board system for you and deliver it?
2: Well, it didn't take them too long. I, I guess six months, something like that. I don't remember offhand. I, probably six months, something like that.
1: And when you guys wanted to like change the rules on a particular game, could you do that in-house, or did Rockwell have to do all that stuff for
2: you? Oh, I, we did that in-house. We had, we had hired two pretty good men, uh, uh, and they they uh, came in. Of course, they couldn't hire couldn't build a whole system for us in that length, short length of time. But they uh, they worked with Rockwell, and and uh, they were competent to men, and uh, uh, they worked out real well for us. So.
0: Okay,
1: Wayne, is there anything I've I I've left out that you would like sure. to add?
2: I, I, I'm just rambling along here with you, Clay. I, I don't know. Uh, uh, I hope I helped you out with something. I don't know.
1: Uh, you, you did great. I mean, th- this is awesome. I, you know, this is. I, I mean, you're. You know, you got to understand all the games, all the Gottlieb games I collect. You know, aside from Knockout, you every game Gottlieb game I have, you designed.
2: Knock, knockout, Harry Mabs made.
1: Right. That's the only one I have that wasn't
2: made by you. Is that right? <laughs> wow. Well, there's a lot of them out there, aren't there? I, I don't know how many there are, but I well, 125, 130, I guess, uh, games, uh, all in all. And some of them we threw out, you know, a lot, a lot of good games I threw out. It, uh, they didn't want to build them. I thought they were good, but uh, Godly didn't think they were good. So, but, uh, so I, I made a lot of games in my lifetime. And I tell you, it was a lot of fun. I often tell people you know uh, not not many uh, men can say they they went to work every morning uh upbeat i always happy to go to work always because I enjoyed my work and and I think it's uh, uh the pinball industry itself was a was a happy business and uh, the people in it were happy people uh, we we were a, we were a good uh, good crew and uh, had a lot of nice people working for us and uh, I met a lot of great people in the industry, you know I knew a lot of them, of course, and not many alive anymore. Uh, I heard one of the reasons you were happy is
1: because of the the, the Gottlieb lunch lady, the, the lady that made lunches. Oh
2: for yeah, <laughs> yeah, we had a couple of them, and boy, they could cook, I'll tell you we, we, we used to eat lunch like crazy, you know, and I'd come home and I'd tell my wife and she what, what we what am I making lunch? What am I making dinner for you for? You have that big lunch? I'm still hungry. I can still eat, and <laughs> I could. I never put on any weight, but I, I enjoy. I enjoyed eating. They uh, the, they actually hired. They actually had basically a cook for
1: you guys there at Gottlieb, right?
2: Yeah, she just cooked for us for the not for the whole plant, just for the uh, upper echelon. You know, the engineers and uh, and the front office. And that was all. Now, how long did they keep doing that till? We did that. Uh, well, from almost from the time I started work there, right up to the end. We always had a cook. In fact, you see, the other companies, like Williams, Cordick, uh, and those kind of guys, they'd go out to dinner and they would uh, meet the other companies, you know, and they'd all talk. And they'd go bowling together and they'd play golf together and they did all kinds of things. We never did. We never, I never fraternized with any of them. Once, once I started designing, I had nothing to do with any of them. Before that, when I was at Western, I used to play baseball, with with the guys. But um, so I got to know quite a few people in the industry. But uh, then uh, then they all got older and went off in other directions. And, but uh, we always had dinner together. We always sat at the table together, and, and our suppliers would come in and sometimes eat with us. Uh, like Charlie Castaker, you know the plastic man. He would come over and. He's a great storyteller, and we tell stories, and we all laugh, and we sit together and laugh, and tell jokes, and and, uh, and we talk business. Some days we we talk in business. Uh, you know, when we built uh, when we built the uh, first flipper game, Humpty Dumpty, uh, we were we hadn't sent out the samples yet, and and uh, Ballet had sent out a game that uh, that. Uh, that uh, I don't know how we heard we heard about it from a location that it uh, it nudged the ball it hit the ball you could hit the ball you know and uh, and we're sitting around a, a kitchen a table having lunch and we're like how how could this be you know one of our suppliers told us this you know and uh, how could this possibly be uh, did somebody here let the cat out of the bag and they got the flipper ahead of us and, and we were worried you know we we're all looking at each other wondering who told who, you know, and uh, so uh, they sent Elvin out to uh, uh, someplace on the West Coast where they had this game out on test, and he called us up one day, at, just a day or two later, and told us what it was, Nudgie, Remember a, a game called Nudgie?
1: Yeah, I do remember that.
2: And uh, it was Nudgie. It came out in uh, in forty seven, uh, and, uh, and we thought it was a copy of the Flipper. Of course, it was Nudgie. And of course, as soon as we came out with uh, with a flipper, that nudgy was gone. Uh, but uh, we we were pretty concerned, and uh, but uh, yeah, and then we went and sold out to Columbia Pictures. <laughs> that was the end of Gottlieb. That was a shame. It, but the lunch lady stayed at when you were even
1: when it was Columbia Pictures, right? Oh yeah, she was still there. Yeah. Well, at least you got some good food out of
2: it. Oh yeah, we got good food. It was a good. We had a good time. I, I, I don't don't try. But then you know I uh, I left in 1980 and, and uh, I was 62 years old and and uh, and so uh, uh, I, I wouldn't collect Social Security until I was 65. So uh, I got made a deal with uh, with uh, with them to uh, be a, a consultant for three years. So I hold my pay and I could retire down Arkansas. And get paid for it, so which was pretty good, and uh, so I, I thought it was they were serious, you know, and, and so I I come back up there, you know, when I had a convention or a, a party or something, and I walk around the shop and say hello to all my friends and, and uh, engineers and all that, and, and, uh, and one time I tried to tell them something. I said, "Gee, I, I don't know, I I don't like this guy, so, you know. Uh, why don't you do this? Or that? Well." I got put out in a hurry. They, they told me, hey, look, you're only a consultant here. That's only name only. You don't, don't come in here trying to tell us what to do. And I go, oh, wait a minute now. Is that the way it is? And they said, that's the way it is. I said, okay. I'll never say another word. So I just sat back quietly and collected my papers for years and uh, let it go. But, you know, if they don't want to listen, they don't want to listen. But, you know, they, they only they just went downhill from then on. They, from the from that moment, they went downhill. Nineteen
1: eighty. Yeah, that was about that was about the end. You're right. Yeah, yeah they, it was... the,
2: the games didn't have the same flavor anymore. They didn't have the uh, the uh, they didn't have the feel. You know, they lost it immediately, and I uh, I, I felt kind of bad about that. But uh, that's the way it goes, you know, that's what, uh, to, to go back a little bit. You know,
1: on Humpty Dumpty, where you had the six flippers, what, what made you decide to go to just the, you know, the two flippers at the bottom of the play field? What was that? How did that decision come about?
2: Well, we, we had the six flippers, and, and uh, I think it was Jenko. Wasn't it Jenko? They, put on, uh, they, they built a game with only two flippers on it. And uh, I, I think uh, Kordick did that, as I recall. Right. I, I don't remember now, but I think Kordic did. And, uh, you know, we looked at all the games that uh, the other companies made it, and uh, and we thought, well, maybe we ought to go down to four flippers. You know, we, we kind of go in half, cut it in half. And uh, I, I think uh, Harry designed a game of four flippers on it. And uh, I, don't, I don't remember my first game. I guess it had six flippers. I don't, I don't remember them. can't remember what...
1: Uh, so were you following Genko's design of of
2: the two flippers? or oh, oh,
0: when I was designing, I
2: never, I never looked at their games. You know, I tell you a little story about that. Uh, God even I, I'm sure the other companies did too. they would get in one of every game of other companies that made they made and uh, and, and they'd bring them in the, in the uh, engineering room or, or wherever. And uh, it happened to be that they always bring the games into my design room when I was a designer because I had the most room. I had a lot of, I had a, actually two rooms. One room I used for designing, the other room was just sort of a storage room. And then they'd bring a the game in there and they'd always tell me, Wayne, now you take a look at this game and see if there's anything you can use. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do that. You know, I'll do that. But I never would. I never looked at the game. I refused to look at them because I didn't want to think like they thought. I wanted to think the way I thought and I didn't want to even look at what they did. And I, so I wouldn't even look at them and of course they, they didn't know that. But, they didn't. but the only thing I ever looked at really, really was bingo games. You'd get a bingo game in from from uh, ballet you know and I loved bingo games. I, I thought they were they, they were intriguing you know. I just loved that reflex unit that's in there and, and uh, things like that and I, I would uh, uh, call over the circuit and study the circuit on, it, on the games and and uh, Cause I learned a lot by doing that. Uh, learned little tricks and uh, so forth I could use it on a circuit on some other game. But I never look at it like a, a Williams game. I, I bring it in, they set it there, but I never look at it. Uh, I wouldn't play it. I wouldn't have nothing to do with it. So when they brought a
1: game in, you mean they would buy uh, competitors' games and bring them into you to look at. What happened to all those? They basically were supporting the other company by buying these games.
2: Well, yeah, but they bought ours and we bought theirs, you know. Actually, we didn't buy them. We, the distributor would send us and send the game in, and we'd supposedly look at it, you know, and play it. And and, and the others, the guys did, Dave did, and, uh, and Judd, Alvin, always played the other game. But uh, we'd only keep it for a week, and then we'd send it back. And I suppose they did the same with ours. We didn't keep it, you know.
1: Wow, I had no idea that you guys would follow the competition that. Yeah, because it would seem like one feature would come out with one company, and then you know somebody else would have it, you know, in a month or something like that.
2: Yeah, well, that's see, they they look at the games and, and I you know, uh, Williams used to copy us all the time. They always copied us, and you know, CORDIC uh, never admitted this. But the the other day, I heard someone say or someone told me that. He uh, at the at, con, at the convention last year, got up and actually actually made the statement that they copied Gottlieb, and I boy I'd like to have been there and heard that because uh, he never admitted it before, but they did copy us all the time. Williams Williams always copied us. He, of course, Cordick was at Williams at this time.
0: Right,
1: but but you never copied them.
2: Never, I never did.
1: Never did. Do you feel like any of your coworkers might have?
2: No, I don't think so. I don't think we ever copied anything. I don't think we did anything that they ever did. Uh, I can't think of anything we ever took from them. <laughs> Certainly not features, not no no parts, no. Uh, uh, maybe the scoring units. Maybe when we went, maybe we went to the reels after they did. I, I don't, I don't recall, but maybe we did. But we sure came out with the metal legs first, the metal cash door, the side rails.
1: Those are all things we did. Now your cabinets were made by a separate cabinet company, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Why? Why didn't you guys make the cabinets too?
2: Why didn't we make the cabinets? Right. That's a dirty business, you know. That's a that's really a special business because you got all that sawdust in the air. It's a, It's a. It's a. Uh, it's a difficult business, it really is. i tell you a little, a little bit about uh, the company. It was August Johnson Cabinet Company. And um, during the war, they made caskets for the uh, United States Army. They were turned into, you know, they, you talk about what we did during the war. Well, there was one of our suppliers that, uh, that uh, in the war effort, built uh, cabinet, uh, ca- uh, caskets, so, which I thought was very interesting. and yeah, that that's almost a little weird. <laughs> well, you know, the pinball cabinet is not too far from a casket. Yeah, right. You are.
1: All right, Wayne. Well, is there anything
2: else that uh, you'd like to add? No, I I don't know. I I got so many stories, you know, and I I just can't think of them until they ask a question. Then I can. Oh, yeah, that rings a bell. But. um
1: Okay, well, I really want to thank you. I really appreciate you spending the time with me. It's actually Burke that was that was pushing me to call you. He Said you got to call Wayne. You
2: got to call him. He's an amazing guy. You got to call him. Well, Rob's quite a guy too. Who would have thought 20 years ago that uh, that uh, there would be such a thing going on as a, as an Expo? You know, and now now all these other guys around the country and around the world ha- having. Uh, uh, these expos—it's uh, wonderful to keep the name, uh, keep the the game pinball alive. And, uh, you know, uh, back uh, when, when when I was in the business, early early years, pinball was a dirty word. Uh, at at Western, you know, it, it was against the law to make these payout tables. We were making payout tables—that was against the law. And uh, and the only way you could stay in business was to pay off the cops. And. Uh, and, uh, and uh, Jimmy, we had a PA system at, at Western, and uh, every once in a while, he, he, Jimmy would come on the PA system just turn on all the lights and everybody be quiet. No noise down there now. Keep it absolutely quiet. And uh, and uh, we know there's going to be a raid. You know, the cops are going to come. And, and so we all be real quiet and not do anything. And we sit there for about an hour, and then he'd come on and go, Okay, let's go. Go to work down there. Get the lights on. Let's go. And uh, you know he paid off somebody. Uh, it was uh, it was a dirty word. Uh, pinball was dirty. So, so did the cops, the cops ever? You. Did the cops ever come in? No, I never seen a cop come in. But uh, the, the threat was always there, you know. But uh, I I went to a uh, uh, I went to a party one time. I I was uh, I was married at the time, so I was I don't I don't think I was. I guess I was designing. Well, I don't know, but anyway, uh, I went to this party, and the, and the guys were all sitting on the back porch, and and, uh, and the women are all in the front room talking, and you know, all the men are out talking, and and we, you know, talk. Men talk. We talk about our business, what we do, and so this guy is a doctor, and this one's a lawyer, and this one's a this, and this one is a that, you know, and everybody's bragging about all the money they make, and and uh, and I'm sitting there, I don't say nothing, you know, and it's so funny if somebody says to me. Uh, well, I think it was a I think was a lawyer who says Wayne, what are you doing? I I said I make pinball machines. Wow! He let me. Oh, you part of the mafia? You're one of those guys who crooks so you carry a gun, you know? And and I said, well, if anyone is a crook around here, it's you lawyers are the biggest crooks. And so we almost ended up in a fight, you know? And it's so all over a lousy pinball machine. But uh, they at that time they they were looked down on. I, I went to, a, uh, I went to a, uh, a dinner at my aunt's house one time, a Thanksgiving Day dinner. And uh, I, was, uh, I was only uh, in the business maybe, well I was at Godly at the time, so I'd been in the business four or five years, and uh, she said, Wayne, are you still building those pinball machines? And I said, yeah, I'm still building pinball machines. And she said, why don't you go out and get yourself a real job? Quit playing those games all day. And that's that's a feeling they had, you know. People had that feeling. Today they look at it differently. You know, it's a, pinball is a, a reputable thing.
1: So. so those are great stories. Now at at Gottlieb, did they did the the they ever have to shut out the lights because of the
2: no, cops? No, no, never, never at Gottlieb. We never had that trouble at Gottlieb. I'll tell you something else. Uh, this now this is interesting. Uh, <laughs> I, I should have told you this a long time ago, but I, never, I never, it didn't follow me. But you know. When I left, when I left uh, Western, Jimmy Johnson was a, uh, uh, you have to know the, the guy, he, he was a, a football player for the University of Nebraska. He was a big guy, big and heavy, muscular, you know, tough. He was tough. And uh, uh, anyway, I left and, and so I went over to Gottlieb and I was working there and I worked overtime. I didn't get home till 7 o'clock. I get home at 7 o'clock and here's Dave Gottlieb sitting on, uh, in the, uh, or not the, uh, uh, Jimmy Johnson sitting in his Lincoln out in front of my uh, apartment building. And uh, so I, go, I see him there and I go over and he said, to Talk to me. I said, Well, you come up to my, uh, my house and you can talk to me. So he came up and my mother was there and, and me and, and he sits down, and we're talking and he says, You've got to come back to work for me. I, I'm not going to put up with this, you know. And I said, Jimmy, I got me a job at but I'm going to stay there. I'm I paying me 10 cents an hour more than you pay me. And uh, he says, well, we'll see about this. You know, he said, you better be at my place tomorrow morning or else. I said, okay. So all night long I'm fretting over this thing, you know. And my mother's telling me, she says, Wayne, you've you got to go back to Western now. They, they've been good to you. You've had this job all these years and, you know, and so on. And they're good to you. This Jimmy Johnson. He's a good man. And I said, well, you don't know him. So the next day I get up and I still don't know what to do, you know, but I go I go back to Gottlieb. I said, I'm I made up my mind and that's it. I'm gonna leave that guy Jimmy Johnson. Well, about two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm testing playboards and this guy pokes me in the back, you know, and I turn around and here's Dave Gottlieb. I never speaking spoken to Dave in in all the years. I go to the conventions but I never I never spoke to him. I knew who he was. And he says to me, are you Wayne Nyans? And I said, yes, I am, Dave. And he says, oh, I got a man up my office telling me I should fire you. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, well you, you know, you're, you're the boss. And uh, he says, I want you to tell me what happened over there. And so I told him exactly what happened. And I said, how he was at my house last night and and, uh, and so on. And he telling me, threatening me more or less. And... Uh, and Dave says, "All right, I'm going to tell you something right now. As long as I own this company, you have a job. Don't you ever worry about that. You're for, you're going to be here forever." And I said, "Oh boy, thanks a lot." You know, and he went up and throws Jimmy Johnson out of the office, and there it was. And so from that moment on, Dave and I were uh, friends. You know, and I could go up in the office and sit down and talk with him anytime. And he'd, wherever I was working, he'd come around and talk to me all the time. But uh, then I got to know Elvin, of course, and I Elvin mean, was still a lad. And I used to teach Elvin a lot of things about pinball machines, you know, he'd, he'd come in on Saturdays sometimes and he'd, uh, he'd come over and I'd, I'd talk with him and work with him, and, uh, uh, and he never forgot that. You know? But those are good, interesting stories, you know.
1: Yeah, th- those are great stories. Those are really good. I like those. I like, I like, I like, I like those that kind. Gottlieb
2: family. They were good to me, and, uh, and I was good to them. And, uh, uh, I, got a, I got a great letter from Judd just the other day, a short time ago. Judd wrote me a letter and, uh, and said, What a lucky day it was when I got off the streetcar at the at and, and Ashland Avenue. And when I didn't go back to Jenko, I came to Gottlieb. He, he, he uh, said, We really appreciated all the years of work you put in for us. And I
1: thought that was a, what a great letter. That is that, well, that's a great letter. I mean, in that, too, I thank you, too, because, I mean, you know, all these Gottlieb games that I own, you know, they all have your, you know, your personal
2: touch. Well, thank you, Wayne. I really do appreciate it. Okay, thank you much. Glad talking to you. It's been a lot of fun. Yes, it has. Thanks, enjoyed man. it, too. All right, bye-bye. Bye. bye
1: i would really like to thank Wayne. He's a true gentleman. Wayne Nyans has, has designed some of the best Gottlieb games Electromechanical games that were ever made and ones that are, are, are forever etched in our minds. And uh, i really like to thank them for coming on, on the TopCast and talking to us. So until next time, I hope you hear us again here
0: on TopCast.